Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast with Luca Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mirror Media Podcast. I am your host, Mukunda Raghavan. Uh, today, I'm joined by two people, um, two very fascinating people, actually, um, who are scholars in their respective fields. Um, and they are staunch Hindus, but also staunch progressives in, in the Western context of that term. Um, the first to join us today is Indu Vishwanathan. Sorry, that's a very familiar way to say it, um, and which, which I am too, so that's okay. Uh, and Indu is a PhD candidate at uh, Teachers College in New York, which is associated with Columbia. And she's focusing on education. And I believe uh, her work is really focusing on the Desi experience of education in the United States, if I'm correct. And she can correct me in a minute. Um, and then the other uh, um, other individual on today is, is Parth uh, Parihar, right? Um, and he is also a PhD candidate at Princeton, but he is focusing on economics. And he was a past president of the HSC or Hindu Students Council in, uh, I believe in Princeton also. Um, so we actually uh, are all um, connected in some ways. Although we've never met, it's the first time we're having a conversation. Um, we are all basically raised in the United States with a Hindu background um, and we're coming with Hindu perspectives. So Indu and Parth, thank you guys for joining me. Um, and if you want, we'll go ladies first. Uh, you know, I don't want to be too patriarchal here, but I'll go ladies yeah. first. And uh, Indu, if you can go and talk about your background a little bit and your story, it'd be great. Awesome. Or we could say age before beauty. I'm okay with that. That works too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I am getting my doctorate in, in education and in teacher education at Teachers College, which is a part of Columbia, uh, which is actually where I started my career in education 20 years ago. I got my master's in elementary education there. Um, in 2001, I graduated from, in 2002, I graduated from there. Uh, I was a career switcher. I started off my career in finance. I was the research assistant to the chief uh, U.S. economist of Citigroup. Oh, wow. Uh, and then totally switched fields out of you know, what was either going to be like an academic pursuit of economics or something more financy. I was a horrible economist. Um, right. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I need to do something else. Uh, I wanted to work with children. I wanted to work with people. Uh, I wanted to do something really meaningful. And so education um, based on some volunteer work I had done fit the bill. So I, I started off my career there. So I've spent 20 years in the field of education uh, as an elementary school teacher, as a teacher educator, as a curriculum developer in the U.S., in India. I was in India uh, in 2008-2009 when Teach for India launched. So I was actually on their first um, summer institute on their faculty as their literacy specialist. I also volunteered with Akanksha, and I also worked in a couple of international schools in Bombay while, while we were there, too. Um, came back, directed a, a nonprofit that is the service arm of the art of living, so uh, IHV. Um, so Yes for Schools, which is what it was called at the time, goes into schools and does pranayama and meditation and social emotional learning. It's a full mm -hmm. curriculum. And I was a research director of that program for three-ish years. And that's when I started my doctorate at Teachers College. I went back for my doctorate. I started off thinking I was actually going to study uh, teacher flourishing and teacher burnout and these practices of transcendental meditation and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, but my experience working with the nonprofit and delving further into the research showed that 
it was really, and, and at conferences, anytime I encountered people trying to do mindfulness research or meditation research, um, there were just a lot of troubles in researching this. There was not a good way to research mm -hmm. these practices, particularly in institutional environments like schools. Uh, you can't have a randomized control trial with a practice like meditation. You can't force people to be a part of a subject, test subject group or not do it. Um, when some people in the building are meditating, it impacts everybody in the building. Um, so many things that were just sort of people's awareness increases. So when you have self-report surveys, the person taking the survey, their awareness has shifted and increased. And so they might, it, a lot of the self-report surveys ended up coming back um, sort of counter indicative of what you would think would happen after something. And so as I delved into it, I started growing really wary and more aware of how frustrating it was to have to prove these practices that are thousands of years old uh, through this, evidence-based structure that, you know, emerged from the pharmaceutical industry. That's where you get randomized control trials from. Right. Um, and also this idea of scalability. So then it was about, you know, well, it should be replicable and it should be scalable. And then I was like, okay, so this is starting to sound a little bit like marketing missionary type stuff um, that doesn't feel good, that doesn't feel authentic. Right. So I, I decided to switch my research focus. Um, I was still interested in teacher education and then and and sitting in New York and, and thinking about the um, the field of teacher education and teachers, there's a lot of talk about diversifying the teacher force. Right. And a lot of that is around um, you know, because anywhere between eighty-eight to ninety-two percent of teachers in the US are are middle-aged white women. <laughs> and that number has not changed over the past thirty years, even though there have been very so many attempts to diversify the teacher force. And part of that is because 90% of teacher educators are white. Uh, so you get a lot more people of color showing up to try to become teachers and they end up dropping out of teacher ed programs. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. So how do we diversify the field? But I noticed that it often ended up being around just of color became this catch all phrase. Um, even though the fact that, you know, 25% of Americans are first or second generation immigrants. And even though sitting in New York, 40% of children have at least one parent who's an immigrant or are immigrants themselves. And we weren't using immigration and the experience of immigrants and what that meant in terms of understanding and contextualizing U.S. imperialism and its relationship with U.S. education um, in teacher education at all. When I went to do a lit review on second generation, when I went to do a lit review on immigrant teachers, it was all about first gen immigrant teachers. Uh, learning the English language and acculturating to the U.S., there was very little about what second-generation immigrant teachers have to contribute to the field of education and what knowledge and awareness they have to contribute. So my dissertation work is on second-generation Indian American teachers in New York who are committed to uh, teaching from a social justice stance, whatever that looks like. And I did that intentionally, knowing that I have issues with how social justice is constructed Sure. Uh, out of the academy, but I wanted to see how they engaged with it and sort of what kind of tensions and things they were coming up against. Um, as it turns out, all four of my participants were raised in Hindu homes. Three of them okay. are continue to be practicing Hindus. And so it's ended up being a study about Hindu American, second generation Hindu American right, teachers, right. which is really fascinating. I'm in the process of analyzing the data now I'm, I'm looking to defend in the fall. So stay tuned for, for interesting things to emerge from that. Um, 
But back to the point in social justice, I noticed that the conversations around social justice in Hinduism um, were controlled by a very, very narrow and well-guarded narrative yeah. uh, that didn't really allow for any kind of dissent or any kind of alternate points of view. And I also noticed that th that particular narrative was informed, oddly enough, by theories from the colonial era uh -huh. that were used to divide and conquer India. Right, right. Uh, specifically for that. And so I was like, okay, this is really strange. There's, they're using the right jargon, you know, from the West, uh, especially because I feel like anti-racism is more in people's awareness than anti-colonialism is. Sure. Um, we talk about it more, we're more familiar with it. I'm like, so why isn't anyone making the connection that they're saying the exact thing that colonizers are saying about India? Right. Uh, and so I guess my, my commitment there in terms of my activism work, if you want to call it, although I'd rather call it actual, just legitimate scholarship now, yeah, yeah. Uh, is really not even necessarily rebutting that, but just creating more space for authentic dharmic expression, dharmic research, dharmic scholarship, and dharmic sure. history to emerge in the academy, um, to just make the space a lot more interesting and interactive and not so narrow. Wow. Okay. That's, that's awesome. I mean, your background is really, really uh, interesting and, and diverse. And um, I like that you've gone, you've done a lot of the scientific work, like hardcore, like in terms of double blind study kind of science and also much more of the social science and the mm -hmm. statistics. It gives you a really good balance of understanding the deficiencies between the both. And also, you know, I mean, we're seeing nowadays in, in a large part of the Western uh, scholarship is coming out saying the, the crisis of reproducibility within uh, both the social sciences and the medical sciences or hard sciences or finding that to be more and more the case for a variety of different reasons. But, uh, mm -hmm. but well, welcome to the program, Indu. Um, and then let's go to Parth and then we'll jump onto the topics. Parth, give us a spiel uh, on your background, man. Namaste, everyone. Uh, thanks, Mukunda, again, for inviting me uh, onto your show. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I'm currently a sixth year now PhD student at Princeton University uh, in the economics department. My work focuses kind of on the cusp of economics and politics. Mm -hmm. So I try to apply game theoretic models to study problems in politics, um, whether it's gridlock, political gridlock and polarization, uh, bargaining problems, uh, which are more general beyond politics, but in particular applying it to study political situations, uh, political agents, legislators, bargaining, uh, and then also solving collective action problems. So those are those are broadly like what my research interests are, and the, that's kind of the work that I'm focusing on uh, academically. Right. Um, on the side, of course, there's also this other Hindu side that takes up almost as much uh, time and energy and, and is probably even closer to my heart. Um, so for the past six years now, I've been involved with Hindu Students Council, mm -hmm. which is a really large a, um, student group uh, across the United States um, that tries to uh, inculcate a space where people can uh, really explore their Hindu identity, learn more about Sanatana Dharma on college campuses, um, and also really form a community, which I think is really important. Um, I don't know if you guys would identify with this, but growing up as a, as a you know, first generation Hindu American in this country, I was always seeking out people who were my, of my own age group, uh, who had a similar experience as I did growing up in the US, um, who could sort of think about what it meant to be Hindu in the West and not always think about Hinduism within just the Indian context. Yeah. So building a community of Hindu Americans here um, that obviously draws from the amazing knowledge, the traditions, 
um, from Bharat um, that builds Sanatana Dharma, but also thinking about how we can think about the U.S. as our karma bhumi here. Yeah. So um, I've been involved with HSC over the last five or six years. It's been a really great experience. Um, and, and through that role, I've also gotten to know a lot of um, stuff that's happening on all other college campuses uh, besides my own. I think, uh, broadly speaking, there were two transformative experiences for me when I was, was, was an undergrad. So one was uh, my first year. Um, I took this class uh, that was called Political Game Theory. So you can imagine why this was transformative. Basically, when I took it, I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do as, as kind of my, at least during undergrad, that, that's what I wanted to be my, my, my academic focus. Sure. I ended up becoming a math major anyway, um, just because I wanted to keep the option open. Uh, math is obviously very central to game theory. Um, I think math also really helps in thinking about logical arguments whenever I write anything. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy that I made that choice. But I always knew that I was eventually going to want to study uh, or apply rather math to social problems and try to think about the way the society works um, and kind of what are the incentive structures that underlie a lot of these problems. So that's kind of where I got my academic interests from, really. Uh -huh. That was also the year, by the way, that the Anna Hazare movement was happening in India. Um, so, and that was kind of my introduction into Indian politics. Uh, during the winter, I actually went to India as well. So we were, I was really immersed in, in all of that. So I was really thinking about like, how can I apply game theory to study like what's happening here? Like, why are all of the actors acting the way they are? So I think that was all very formative for me. And then the second uh, experience was being part of um, Princeton's Hindu student group on campus um, and starting to think a little bit more about the way that the academy was representing India and Hinduism in particular. Right. Um, I think there was one particular thing that, that I always go back to, which was a reading we had to do for this um, class, which was called Grand Strategy. It was, a, it was a class about the way that you can think about different types of international relations strategy, strategies. Uh, sure. Realism, for example, trying to enmesh, or, or realism, for example, trying to enmesh uh, different uh, players into institutions. So there was one reading we had to do uh, during that class, which was imagining what would have happened if the British and the other European powers had not influenced uh, the open door policy on China. What would have happened if China had been the actual Britain of the world? Mm -hmm. And they wanted to think about this from the point of view that China was the greatest Eastern power and Britain was the greatest Western power. Mm. And one of the arguments they made in the book was to justify why China was the power that they were going to be focusing on. They had to first think about why China was actually the greatest Eastern power, why not some other power? So the two other great Eastern powers they focused on were India and Persia. Yeah. And the argument for eliminating India was, yes, India is a great power. It's a, it's a, a very large country just like China, it has a very long history. However, the India that exists today has no relationship with the India that existed hundreds of years ago. That there's no continuous civilizational thread that connects the India of the 20th century, because it was written in the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, to the India of yesteryear, um, the way that that exists for China. And sure. this argument to me, even as a, as a 20 year old, was, was kind of like baffling. Um, that people kind of think about India in this way of, of it being kind of chopped up into periods that have very little to do with, with one another, where it's one colonial ruler replacing another one, and eventually you get to post-1947, and it's just this mishmash of different 
different cultures that has no underlying relationship with what existed beforehand. Um, sure. Not thinking about it as a land that can soak in different influences and, and kind of maintain its, its character, but as something that just completely changes over time. Um, so that was really strange to me. And I was like, this is really, really weird. Um, I've also continually over the last 10 years been exposed to, because I've been at Princeton this whole time, Mm-hmm. I've also been uh, exposed to how uh, narratives on Hinduism change over time uh, sure. at the same location. Thinking so, it's very good for the you know Induji mentioned randomized control trials. So I, yeah. I, I kind of have a control because I'm in the same location over this long period of time. So I'm able to see, or I've been able to see the way in which kind of the same administrators, the same professors, even. Um, have treated Hinduism differently as time has gone on. It's always been bad. Um, so while I was an undergrad, um, there was another undergrad. Uh, her name was Shikha Uberoi. She's actually a really famous tennis player. Also, yeah, yeah, I yeah, know, yeah. You know her? Yeah. Uh, I've heard of her. Yeah, definitely. Um, so she, so she was an undergrad at Princeton as well, and she, she launched a petition um, to the South Asian Studies Department asking for there to be more uh, inclusive content as it related to Hinduism. Right. Even back then, I think this was like 2013. Um, and now cut back to what's been happening, you know, over the last year or so. Um, and we've seen kind of the way that Hinduism has been treated uh, in, diff- in various different events on campus, whether it's uh, events that have been done on Kashmir, specifically relating to Kashmiri pundits and the way that they've been kind of denigrated, um, sure. you know, during campus events. Um, also thinking about the way that the CAA was covered um, on campus and the way that Hindu persecution is kind of never included as even a consideration in those discussions. Mm-hmm. I think I've really been able to see the way that things have changed over time and, and seen the need to really bring awareness to these issues, which is why I've stuck with, with HSC and taken on more of an advocacy role as part of its board of trustees now. Right. Well, well that's, that's, I mean, that's a lot of stuff you've done in your short uh, adult life, right, of like nine years, a little less than that. Um, it's, it's a, I mean, people like you are, make me excited for the next generation, but at the same time, I feel like people like you are in many ways exceptions to a rule. Um, but uh, I have a couple questions. I, I think, I think uh, you both started a couple threads we can pick up on. So I actually want to start with, uh, in the, you brought up a thread about social justice and yeah. what that determined or the colonial understanding of that and racism, right? So can you talk maybe a little bit about what anti-racism means in the West, what anti-colonialism means generally, and how they connect or don't connect? Sure. Um, I think maybe I'll start with my current understanding of it. That may be the most helpful. Um, My understanding, and it continues to to shift and grow and become more nuanced of anti-racism, is that racism itself is based on identity and identity markers and categorizing of people, and then using those categories um, to extract anything from labor to, you know, pitting groups against each other, that sort of thing, in whether it's a a racial hierarchy or a racial network, whatever it is, the categories are based on these identities. And so racism itself is based on identity. And so anti-racism work is based on identity. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the authority goes to identity. That's where you get your, um, that's who's given the mic. And that's where the knowledge about the way in which racism work comes from is from identity. 
colonialism in, I would say like post-colonial or decoloniality, let's talk about it as decoloniality, which is different than something like decolonization, right? Because decolonization is like the removal of the structures and decoloniality is very much um, psychological, social, and epistemological. Sure. And so that epistemic hand, the, epi the epistemic violence and the hand of that violence and the long-term shadow of that violence or the continued violence uh, from colonialism in post-colonial countries um, is, based on, is based on the attack on knowledge and our connection to knowledge. Um, and the ways in which those things are being conflated, I think, in the conversation around India is that because anti-racism is the dominant framework, the one that everyone has, you know, and thankfully become a lot more mm -hmm. um, conversant in even in the, in, in the past 20 years, I've seen it go from, you know, academia from the ivory tower and pockets of, you know, activist spaces to like companies are selling anti-racist, you know, slogans now to sell their products. It's become that commonplace. Um, so it's, it's very easy for people to relate to it. They get it, sure. they understand, or they think they understand how it works. So when that's placed and when that's mapped on a post-colonial nation, you're giving the mic to the people who are the most depressed and, and saying that they have adhikara in terms of the actual knowledge tradition and the, sure. and the origin and the lineage of the knowledge tradition. In order to decolonize, they are the voices to understand how to decolonize that space which is, you know, like there is powerful and important anti-oppression work to do sure. from the space of identity, but that's not the same as decoloniality and that's not the same as decolonization. They're, they're two different things and they're very much being conflated. Right. Um, if I can, I mean, is it kind of what you're saying is, so the tools that we're going to, they're using in the decol, uh, de not colonization, but the, uh, what would you call it? Decoloniality. Decoloniality, yeah. A decoloniality project are the very same tools that are used to gauge or look upon the, the, the colonized people anyway, right? In, in some sense, right? Because what we're saying is from the Western standpoint, you come and you look at this entire group of civilization, the civilization, and you see something that doesn't fit in your framework. So you square that circle. You constantly square that circle to make the reality fit your, your conceptions. And when you do that, what you end up doing is creating this world in which you're viewing everything through this prism of the way you conceive the world and all the knowledge production that happens after that is viewed through that prism. So when you're saying you give it back to say the oppressed, they end up viewing the system in the same prism that you gave it to the oppressed. So instead of viewing it indigenously, like what maybe scholars or, or the tradition itself would talk about as for example, let's type, let's bring up caste, right? What the origins of caste or, the way caste function in India, right? We talk about caste, but caste isn't, we you know, the same as Barna, it's not the same as Jati. These are very specific terms within, within the tradition in India. But when you apply it in a Western world, it all just becomes caste. And then that term itself is applied now by everyone to just talk about things that don't make sense because they never made sense in the, in the framework that was presented to them. Yeah, absolutely. And then because it all sounds familiar, you're like, oh, you can just, you know, find and replace caste with race and you'll right. understand what's going on. Uh, you end up seeing people, you know, I've seen things in print here in the U.S. that are like, well, you know, caste was determined by color. 
So the darker you were, the lower your cast, and the light, sure. which is absolutely, we know that it's absolutely untrue. It makes absolutely no sense. But everyone just kind of nods along because, oh yeah, that's what happened here too. Well, I mean, a, a part of this problem is also that people tend not to, you know, knowledge is, is vast, right? So like a, 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 a person that's studying caste might not know anything about the Hindu text outside of the English translations that are given to them or the Buddhist text or whatever it is, right? Even the, even the way they view those texts are informed by translations and the commentaries on those translations over time. So when you do talk about like the term varna, right? In Sanskrit, that varna can mean multiple things. It can mean color, it can mean type, it can mean uh, like varna mala means like a mala of, of, of words. It can mean word, like a, so there's a very different usage of that term, but to break it down into a translation and then across the board becomes I mean in some ways Rajiv Malhotra his is his project on the untranslatables is very important but you know I think it's it's been around for a long time um, but I think we have to engage when we talk about these things especially in with each other and especially amongst each other not just the three of us but amongst other other people from the subcontinental background that have this cultural and civilizational uh, milieu that we can we should, start, we should start using more of these untranslatable words, varnajati, as opposed to caste, because like you said, we talk about caste, you just map it onto race, and then suddenly you have this situation where everything looks like its origin is just white people coming in from you know, the, the steep of uh, you know, Central Asia and being like, hey, we see these dark, dark-skinned, flat-nosed people, they're going to be our servants. Parth, you've been quiet. I mean, I want you to <laughs> chime in whenever you want. Sorry, just jump no, in no, and no, totally go to town. No, I think, I think this problem of mapping familiar contexts onto studying problems in, in very different contexts um, can lead to very bad conclusions, obviously. And we see that not just in the, in the study of caste, but also basically in the study of almost, almost every subject related to India, where things are often related to a U.S. or a Western-based lens. So if you, if you think about like Kashmir, for example, um, it's often said that, you know, Kashmir is this place that's being colonized by yeah. India, that the, the presence of India there is a, is a uh, indicator of imperial, uh, of, of an imperial nature. So I think that's also thinking about the ways in which the U.S. has engineered the fall of governments in, in various sure. different countries, the way that European countries have, have obviously colonized um, places that um, they didn't have cultural similarities with, like India. Um, and it has cachet because people are like, oh yeah, like Hinduji said, like, oh yeah, like this is familiar to me. And like, they also see very selective details about the problem that are mm -hmm. chosen specifically because they map into that framework. And so I think for us, it's very important to, th to think about um, kind of mapping up a broader truth. Right. Um, and, and in the case of, like you mentioned, that could be thinking about Sanskrit non-translatables, uh, so dharma is another great one, right? Yeah, yeah. Dharma always gets translated as religion. And like just a very, very meta basic level, that's not what it is. Um, I remember reading also a paper by, I think it was Professor Arvind Sharma, where he's arguing yeah. that the very nature of how religious freedom is understood in the West is that you have, um, people have the ability to um, uh, convert, uh, to practice, mm -hmm. to disseminate, 
Um, but it's never enshrined or codified that people have the right to retain their religion. Right, right. And this is a very obviously Abrahamic idea that comes from the idea that, uh, you know, people should have the ability to propagate their religion, but it's not necessarily the case that you have the ability to retain um, your religion. And obviously coming from a, from a Dharmic perspective, you would think about that right existing. Uh, obviously going through the layers of, of colonization that India has and seeing the ways in which religious conversion has been used as a tool of uh, epistemicide, as Indiki sure. would put it. Um, I think that is something that really informs our understanding of, of what religious freedom really means. So when you think about the ways in which religious freedom is then applied to study India, for example, you can see the skewed perspective that somebody would get not realizing the context of the Dharma traditions within India itself. Right. I mean, I think it's really interesting this way, because if you think about uh, from the perspective of historically India, right, you have Buddhism, Jainism, you know, Ajivikas, you had a bunch of different traditions. Um, and and m many Buddhists, even today, or Buddhist scholars or people that talk about Buddhism, they fail to recognize that Buddha wasn't, when he, when he came around, he didn't care about caste. He didn't talk anything about caste. What he talked about was the, the truths about the world of suffering. For him, it wasn't, he, it wasn't, people like to couch, and Vishwa Duluri, Bala Gangadhara, a bunch of these people do the very great work of showing, in some sense, that when you talk about these traditions, what they actually had in, is, these were shamanic paths, right? These were paths of people, like Buddhism and Jainism, where people left the fold of society to go to a Sangha or an ashrama to practice their, 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 their traditions. But their underlying society, when they were living in the world, was still Vedika or Tantrika or Agamika, right? So they'd be very much focused on doing, they would still have uh, yajnas or homams at home, and they would practice the, whatever they were practicing at home, but they would, at the end of their life, choose Buddhism, or when it came to the point of giving money, they would give to Buddhism. But they were still very Vedic at home. So even the way we think about religion in India, or religion as we want to call it, is problematic because people believed all these different things at once. No one identified, I'm just Buddhist, right? Like even, for example, the Arthur of Silipadi got him, a, a, a Tamil text, is, uh, it, it, what's his name? Il, uh, he is a Jain, but when he's writing in the text, he brings in a lot of Brahminical stuff, a lot of Vedic stuff, and makes it a core of the text. So you end up, you see these texts across India in generations where you don't find a fine demarcation between religion to religion. And when the Abrahamics come in, we suddenly had to be faced with something that didn't mesh and flow and uh, have acceptability. But you do, in some sense, see that until the past, I guess, few hundred years, or a couple hundred years, when Indian Christians and Indian Muslims adopted a lot of the Hindu mentality towards practice. So, sorry, that was just uh, a thing I just wanted no, to No, it's interesting. What it's, what it's bringing up for me, and it's actually this is something that's come up for me even in analyzing my data, is is this idea of these religions being sort of the tip of the iceberg, but actually what they're indicating are the blueprints for civilization. So the US is a Christian civilization, right? And, and India is a Hindu civilization or a Vedic or a Sanatana Dharma civilization. Right. And so what we understand are the blueprints for that civilization. Right. Um, but when you take something like the idea of a scripture and you hear organizations like Equality Labs often make these things. They say that caste is in Hindu scriptures, is in Vedic scriptures, mm -hmm. you know, and they're, they're not talking about 
uh, Shrutis, they're talking about Smritis, they don't understand the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that it's um, a reflexive system. They don't understand that it's a system that's meant to be reflexive, that's meant to sort of respond to whatever is happening in society, that it's not a fixed thing. They have no concept that this is a blueprint for civil for civilization and for society, they're thinking of a scripture as this is something that's handed down from God that is then preached and disseminated and ever, because they're using an Abrahamic construction of what a, what a scripture is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's totally true. And so, so these epistemes are universalized. Mm -hmm. That's a part of the epistemic violence. Is that, it's not that, um, and, and, and I think the reverse is true too. I think a lot of times you hear Hindus almost sounding like apologists for Abrahamic religions because they're assuming that our epistemes are their epistemes mm -hmm. as well, yeah. right? They're assuming that those other faiths have the same, they don't have a mandate to, we don't have a mandate to convert them. And so they're assuming that they don't have a mandate sure. to convert everyone around them, right? Sure. Despite everything that they might see around them. And they think the solution to the issues of continued epistemic violence that's happening in India yeah. is to embrace rather than to say, actually, your entire faith is premised on converting or killing us. Right. So back to Part's point, like we have a right not to convert. I mean, but what does that mean? In terms of? I mean, like, uh, well, I mean, I mean, inherently as individuals and groups, right, we can say we don't want to convert, but to say you have a right, is that like enshrined right, do you think? Or is it just like a, a social right? I mean, in, in that sense is, I mean, how, how does it practically work? So one practical way that it would work, right, and we've seen these laws actually passed in India are like anti-conversion laws, for example. Yeah. Uh, which are read in the West as an attack on religious freedom. Right. But to the point that I was making earlier, they should be read in the Indian context as a way of protecting religious freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you can have concerns about the way that the law would be applied and, and, and sure. all of that. but. But basically, the, the frameworks that I think people people approach the, that specific legislation from, just to give a practical example, would be very different in the two contexts. Um, going back to the point that you were making earlier about um, the way in which there was a lot of fluidity between different traditions within India, different specific sampradayas or different philosophy, philosophical traditions, right. one of the things that really comes to mind is that the process of categorization, especially rigid categorization, has really led to a sense of loss of, of, of what Hindu civilization was really like. Right. And to connect this to the previous example that you had about caste also, um, you know, L. Middleton, who was the superintendent of the 1921 census conducted in Punjab, British officer, um, you know, he, he has a quote where he, he says basically that the, the kind of the worst thing that the British did was to introduce this type of categorization within the census system because it separated people who were once in a more fluid, not completely fluid, but more fluid social structure into these very rigid boxes where they were separated by caste and, and basically in, in, in code told that you can't do certain activities. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that system has, has continued to be mm -hmm. just as rigid, has, you know, has resisted attempts at, at massaging and trying to go back to the way it was in visage originally. You right. see a similar idea, whenever we discuss Hindu ideas, we often think about them, like you were mentioning, as either this or that. That's a very Abrahamic idea, the idea of, um, this came up, uh, I think, last week uh, on one of Induji's posts about the law of excluded middle. It's either this right. or it's that. 
it can't be both things at the same time. And Hindu philosophies obviously um, envisage more than two possibilities. Right. I mean, so it's it's just it's interesting to me because I mean, when we bring up the issues of like again this fluidity that we see and 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 even the way we view text, like 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 Hindu brought up. In the, you know, I had a, a conversation just yesterday with uh, Brahmachari Sharan, and he actually brought this up, which was really fascinating. Again, it's, it's an undercurrent we all think about. Like, for example, like, let's talk about, if you talk about, like, someone like Ramanuja or, or Shankara who wrote right in these texts, like, you know, Vedanta, the Bhashas on the, on the Vedanta Sutras, they'll say something like, you know, Shudra cannot hear the Vedas or something of that nature. But when you look at their, their life story and other, other texts they write, they're very egalitarian about things, right? So what you end up having is I think you have these two levels in which they're doing performative level at the level of textual uh, uh, scholarship. And then their actual level ends up being a much more diverse, inclusive nature of, of taking the realities of the Indian world into, into context. And as to your point, as to the Dharma Shastas, is no one viewed those texts as necessarily being sacrosanct and from from God as if they're they're free because you have just not and this is again a huge problem with people like Equality Labs and, and people that study this stuff or don't study this stuff more Manusmriti is one there's Yajnavalka there's Vishnu there's Narada there's there's dozens of Harita there's dozens if not thousands of texts that are all Dharma Shastras whose entire point they just argue with each other about these points and about these nature of what what caste relationship is or this or that. And even a text like Mahabharata encodes in it that dialogue about the, the tensions they find and the ability to move up and down within various various dvarnas and jatis. It's, so to say that this, these things are fixed in stone as if a word from God is a very much, like you said, epistemic uh, um, killing of our native epistemic ways to view the, our history and tradition. There was something I was going to say that both of you were talking about. And I was like, I should write it down. I'm going to forget it. Um, well, in this thinking, oh, there you go. No, actually, what I was thinking was a conversation I saw on social media, yeah. which um, interestingly was between uh, a Hindu and uh, a Christian, someone who actually trained in the seminary. Yeah. And he, he couldn't quite, you know, he thought a guru was similar to like a preacher, for instance. Yeah. And mm. so my friend was educating this person and saying, um, you know, Sanatana Dharma is the only tradition you'll see or di as different from Abrahamic tradition where a guru might even advise a shishya like into a different, if that's what's appropriate yeah. for them, right? They're not trying to convert them and keep them in, quote, the fold. That's not their prerogative and that's yeah. not their responsibility right their responsibility is to help that individual seeker find their authentic path which right. is i think where exactly what you were describing that's the reason for that fluidity is right. because it's a responsive system for whatever the individual soul needs to journey through but that fluidity uh, creates so much complexity so much contradiction uh, but that's i mean i guess that's the issue of the world right inherently yeah, as opposed to try to control the world in um, like we are the masters and of the world, mm -hmm. we need to churn it to the way we want it. It's more of this is how the world is working. How do we best navigate this? 
what are the ways for us to move through this right. crazy complexity? And I feel that's the way, that's my sense of when I look, read the, the text, in, either Sanskrita or the translations in Tamil, or I can't read Tamil, but I know Sanskrita. So to read it in the, in the Sanskrit world, it's, it's, it's very like, they're always trying to figure out how do we work within this insanity of life to just to get to a, a place right. where we're comfortable. Right. And I think that's where the sort of Christianity of social justice uh, really strikes me, right? Yeah. Because you could say that the the experience of being a seeker in Sanatana Dharma is very much an acknowledgement of the moral dilemma of existing. Yeah. Right? It's not about, it, and that's not to say it doesn't experiment or give examples of, of right righteous yeah. behavior. For sure, there are examples of that. Right. Um, but it's not black and white, certainly not, uh, it's certainly not unnuanced. Whereas this idea of social justice, and, and before I even started aligning myself with some of the, the commitments maybe of social justice without uh -huh. necessary, I was, I was really taken aback by the name. I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. <sighs> this feels prescriptive. This feels unnuanced. This feels exclusive. This, this is very narrow. Right. And I'm like, this idea of justice sounds like, okay, like you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. Like that's, mm -hmm. and, and so you see that playing out, right? Like you see that playing out. Uh, people are born into sin because they're born white now. That's yeah. the thing, right? Like um, you're looking for redemption. You're looking for salvation. Someone is now the judge. Now that Jesus is black again. So yeah. now black people are the judge of the white people who were born in original sin by being white. Right. Um, I, I mean, just on a, on a counterpoint to play devil's advocate, some people would respond that, well, that's what untouchability is, right? You're born into sin. Um, and how would you have to deal with that? Well, I think the idea of sin is really like the, or, the, the idea of being born from sin is different than being born untouchable, right? Like at, yeah. the, at the, at the, the idea of, of the, the source of existence being sin is not, you know, where our ideas come from right, for us right. at the center, at the source is love or bliss or however, you know, sure. whatever you think, but it's certainly not sin. Right. Um, it's not even, you know, Adi Shankar would say it's not even nothingness um, as a counterpoint to Buddha. So, so the idea of it being sin on the other end of nothingness, like that's, that's so finalized. Right. But I mean, we, uh, I mean, the karmic theory does play into this role of punya and papa and, 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 you know, demerit. And so maybe it's not a, a, an analog uh, to sin, but it is somewhat of, I mean, maybe the same universe. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that term plays equal, but, I, but you get what I'm saying here? It's yeah, like, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I think, I think first, like the single life episteme doesn't apply to us. Right. And I think, you know, the ways of karma are so much more complex than they're memed out on social media. Right. right. <laughs> um, and that's not to at all to uh, evade your question about untouchability. Sure. I, I, think, mean, I don't think you're I evading think, at all. Yeah, I think uh, maybe I'm trying to situate it. Yeah. Um, in terms of untouchability, like I, I struggle with it. I think like we all do. I, but I think that's a part of exactly what I was talking about. You know, I think for me, the issue is that that dharmic society needs to be cured by the social justice, social justice Abrahamic hand. For me, I would rather say, well, what do our 
scriptures say? What do our ancestors say? How yeah, do yeah. we handle a situation like this? That is a moral dilemma. Right. It, is, it is absolutely a moral dilemma. But like give Dharmic society a chance to like catch our breath from all this colonization, like actually be reconnected to our scriptures and figure this out. And we need to figure it out. We don't have, we don't have a hundred years to wait to figure this out. We have to figure this out now, but yeah. it's certainly not coming from an external solution uh, that's imposing its epistemes on us. Sure. Right. Right. Just to, just to go back to also what um, the point you were making, Mukunda, I think one of the biggest differences also is that the very idea of karma implies agency, right? So in the case of, in the case of, a, no, mm, no, uh, it, it, it implies, uh, action. It, well, it implies, implies action. that, but I mean, if you get to deeper karmic theory, which is actually, will end up, end up saying that, in fact, what you are doing is you're not doing anything. You have the appearance, the mentality of mm. doing something because your vasanas, your samskaras inform your ability in this life through your raga, dveshas, um, so all these things, your mind, your manas, right? Which is not actually what you are. You are the atma. So the atma is not the one that makes any decisions. Atma is a bogta, which is an experiencer. It just simply experiences the flow of the actions that the mind makes. And the mind is the, is the one that is, is, thinks it's choosing something when it's actually just playing out its karmas. Which is why, like in the, in, in the Gita, in some sense, Krishna uses the word nimitta a lot, which is instrument. You know, you are, mm. and he, and there's a, a great line in the 17, you know, uh, he goes, Ishvara Sarva Bhutanam Hridesu Arjuna Tishriti Brahmayan Sarva Bhutani Yenta Rurari Maria. Maya. So he's saying, Ishvara sits in the, the hearts of all beings, spinning them around as if they are a yantra, a toy. Mm. You know, basically they're playing out the, their actions. And this is why knowledge and bhakti becomes a, a path of salvation is because knowledge cuts through the, the mala uh, or, the, or the covering that gets, opens the soul up to understanding its true nature. And then no longer, you're, because the, the actuality is you have to recognize you aren't an agent. You're actually free in itself. I mean, that's one way, but yes, at, at a superficial level, yes, agency is required. Well, I think, I mean, I would also add to that, not necessarily push against it. We have, we have practices of sadhana and seva that help release our, you know, all of that, right? We can, we can move past that. That is the path, right? Yeah. I mean, we have to act as if uh, agency is a real thing. Right. But it is real at a, at a certain level. You're right. Right. So, so, so sorry, the, the basic point that I was just going to make was that original sin comes from kind of a historical approach, right? Where yeah. in the, in the, as in the, as you put it, the single life episteme, there were the first people, they committed some grave sin, which now we all inherit. That's very different from the idea of karma. Even if you think of somebody as an instrument who's just acting out their karma, yeah. it's a very different idea than somebody else did some, because there is, first of all, no one, there's nobody else in some sense, right? Sure. The most uh, basic level. But then also thinking about the idea that this is not something that's carried as a burden historically. So, I mean, then my question to you would be, okay, so in this, in this world, it's very difficult to, in, to in, with any interlocutor to have a conversation about many lives, right? Especially when we're talking about things as important, as, as viscerally important as racism or uh, casteism in some sense, right? Now, our, our, the fallback can't be, well, maybe in your past life this happened, you know? It has to be in some sense we have to view it in this life, right? What's going on in the structures of this life. How 
how would you in that way approach that same issue but without the uh, i guess the the ability to fall back on the multiple lives thing so in that in the multiple lives contest it makes a lot of sense about people's status not not necessarily what's happening to them or but but what the situation in life is you know shit happens sorry i, I i'll cuss on the podcast the shit happens right. and then um and you've got to deal with it, right? You just like, there's just things out of our control. And then like where, where we're born to, what kind of like mental makeup we have, what kind of genes we have, these are totally out of our control. Um, so we assign that to karma. So assuming that, assuming that doesn't exist, but we're born here, we're born in this situation. How do we respond to that? I think it goes back to what you were saying. We have to behave as if we were agentive. Yeah. Right. And we have to find what is, what is my journey this time? What is my karma this time? What is, you know, what are the choices I'm making? I'm using air quotes, right? Sure. Uh, I think we have to do exactly what you said. Behave as if we're, in G- and, and take action as if we're agentive. Yeah, I mean, apart, you got thoughts? I mean, I agree with that. Uh, obviously, I mean, you have to, there's this, there's often this, I, I find this debate frustrating because people often debate whether humans have free will or not. And it becomes yeah. kind of a central philosophical debate. And in some sense, the answer to the question to me is not the most important thing because whether or not somebody has free will, everybody behaves as if they do. Right. And that kind of becomes the guiding principle for for everybody leading their own lives. Right. I mean, I would agree with that. As a Hindu, or at least Vedanta in some sense, I can take that bifurcated position where in the actual world, I do have free will. Um, But in some sort of grander scale of, of, you know, Brahmanness, I probably don't, right? Right. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it's the other way around. In the apparent world, yeah. you appear right. to have free right. will. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. So it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, I find it, um, and, and to the point Indu you were making earlier about the, the need to change the issues at hand within Hindu and Indian society or South Asian society now at large. But uh, one of the things I, I've, I've, I've struggled with is, um, if you look through our history, at least the past like 2000 years, so let's say 2000 years, you have movements after movement after movement where Sants, uh, you know, uh, Alvars and, you know, uh, Nayanars and the Bhakti movement in the north and the Dasa movement in, in Karnataka, all of them come out and they're talking about reforming society, right? Or having no caste issues, like, you know, Anamacharya, Prindas, they all talk about seeing everyone equally, treating everyone equally. So it, it, it's, it's as if our system inherently itself from the beginning had a mechanism some way of trying to address these issues. And I, but I also think that from our perspective, we end up seeing that these issues never go away. Like even racism is never going to go away. This, the second, we're not going to end up in some Eden or paradise in which anything goes away. It's, we have to, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's sometimes a struggle with what the progress would talk about what does that actually mean? I, so I think that that idea of progress and connecting our actions to any mark of progress uh, is the kind of doership where we're falling for that Maya that we actually have agency. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that like we're fated to always be really messed up, but we're kind of fated to always really be messed up. I mean, <laughs> right? Like, like uh, you know, I was on this um, silence retreat over the weekend and the teacher was like 
where, you know, you hear people saying that like, it's not fair, that's not fair. Where did anyone ever get the idea that the world was ever or ever going to be fair? Yeah. It's about like who you are and what you're going to do about it. Like, that's the thing. And that goes back to our whole, whole, the whole premise of what we've been talking about, which is um, how to engage in moral dilemma in and around you versus how to uh, make smooth the world with justice. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, so that we can all achieve heaven together or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what, what they say. Well, you guys are both enmeshed in, in the new generation, right? You guys are both in university campuses in which there is vibrant youth culture and um, probably some engagement of these kind of issues. Uh, maybe can you guys talk about how like what we're talking about right now affects the, the youth of today and how they think about not only, I guess, Hinduism, but yeah, how they think about Hinduism in light of all this stuff that's going on on the college campuses. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's kind of crazy right now. So just to clarify the question, you mean how social justice more broadly affects the ways that young Hindus talk about and, and process yeah, Hinduism? Yeah, yeah. And, and like, and how much they, they think about their own traditions in regards to that, or if there's a sense that they have of their traditions. In, in, um, I'll, I'll go first and speak yeah. briefly, because I think Parth probably has a lot more to say. So I actually work uh, with graduate students. I don't work with undergrads, because uh -huh. um, Teachers College is a graduate program of education. Uh, and I will say that uh, with some of the Indian American students I've worked with and with, the, with my research participants, um, what I found really, and this may be because they're older, you know, they're in their mid to late twenties, as opposed to teenagers, yeah. um, they feel this, uh, this moral dilemma. My parents think or feel one way about things, but I'm hearing all of this other stuff and I'm, you know, committed to social justice and I want to know more. And my parents don't necessarily know how to communicate that to me. And so I think this is what I should feel, but something doesn't feel right. So they're seeking, they're searching, and they're actually quite open. And when I've shared other perspectives with them, um, it's come down to, oh, this is the point I wanted to make earlier. I think what you end up seeing a lot on social media in the world is people operating from different sets of information, accusing the other party of being ignorant, mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, hey, actually, these are my assumptions, and this is a set of information I'm operating from. And so I've reached these conclusions. How yeah. about you? <laughs> Yeah. No one does that, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but in an because, educational setting, yeah. uh, and with with my with these students, where where that's sort of our prerogative, that's our commitment is to actually unpacking our assumptions right. and understanding what it's completely different. I've actually found, and these are much more intimate relationships than say like a large lecture where you're lecturing right. two hundred people. These are small seminar situations. Um, I've actually found that there's a lot of room for like listening and understanding mm. and and when you actually share more of the facts as opposed to um just hurl you know pithy like caustic remarks at each other you got destroyed um, <laughs> that's how it yeah like, instead of everyone all. just like mic dropping all over the place <laughs> yeah. and actually being like actually this is the information that i'm operating from and these are my sources and this right. is you know my like people are actually really, really open to understanding and, and understanding mm -hmm. it more and are actually quite taken aback at how much they didn't know, which is kind of the purpose of going to school. So that's right. Exactly. Yeah. I have a yeah, question wish, about your experience. No, just because I wish, I wish educational spaces were more like what you're describing. <laughs> Unfortunately, they often aren't. Yeah. Um, 
to connect this to something that Induji and I often talk about, um, it's the way that I think right and left often gets mapped from the U.S. context to the Indian context and kind of right. conflated. Um, so I, I, I think left and right in general, even in the U.S. context, are bad ways of thinking about political ideas and attitudes because they are kind of catch-all terms that don't really adequately describe sure. what people are feeling. So I prefer conservative and progressive. Um, where conservative people are people who their general tendency is to think that the way that society is currently structured, there's great value in that, and there's great value in conserving and preserving that structure and order right. um, as, as a primary impulse. Right. And for progressives, the primary impulse is to see the progress that can be made on what exists and to constantly strive for that progress. Uh, in the U.S. context, therefore, there's no... Um, I guess, uh, dissonance, right, between thinking about progress and also thinking about conservation, both from a Judeo-Christian lens. Right. Um, in the sense that you don't have to give up that lens uh, in order to advocate for Medicare for all, in order to advocate for racial justice, in order to advocate for a minimum wage, all of yeah. these issues, uh, women's right to choose gets a little bit dicey. But, you know, for most issues, you don't have to give up your, your Christian identity. In fact, there's a, I mean, there's a broad tradition historically in the U.S. of Christians actually leading a lot of these initiatives. So most of the abolitionists right. in the 1840s and 1850s were Christians, and that's where it grew up from, right? So like Induji was mentioning, social justice often has a lot of these assumptions built into it in the U.S. Now, if you look at um, this binary between conservative and progressive when applied to India, the reason that society needs to progress is often because we need to progress beyond Hinduism, which is seen as superstitious, which is seen right. as backwards, it's not modern, modernity can only be achieved if we um, kind of try to pursue a Western trajectory of development and a Western trajectory of, of epistemologies. So that's kind of the division, right? That in, in India specifically, being progressive is kind of seen as, as wanting to give away or shorn yourself away from those traditions, which you view as being the impediment to progress. Mm. Whereas in reality, especially if you kind of take yourself out of that context of that specifically within Indian society context, and you think about just Hinduism itself, you think about Hinduism as a very fluid tradition, as we've talked about, you think about it as a tradition that historically has, as you have been mentioning, um, accepted social reform movements with open arms, usually, um, or at least they have existed within Hinduism for throughout its history. Um, you think about the ways in which, like um, Induji was mentioning, the difference uh, between a Shruti and a Smriti and the ways in which Smritis are meant to be rewritten over time to capture uh, different societal mores and changing understanding of the Shastras. So if you think about it that way, there shouldn't be any dichotomy between understanding progress um, as something that can exist within a Hindu framework, within a dharmic framework. What happens when you go to university is that the framework that is often applied to study India is exported from India and brought back. And that Give exported, an example. Sure. So uh, casteism is a great example, right? So casteism is, is almost always thought about as a theological issue primarily. Okay. Um, and if you think about equality labs, their basic stance is basically that Hinduism needs to be dismantled before we can actually 
dismantle casteism. I mean, they say this very openly. Their but political. Baker said that too, right? I mean, in some sense. So we talked about, Induji and I talked about this on a podcast. Uh, I want to say it was on Ambedkar Jayanti in April yeah. with uh, Jay Sadipa. Okay. So Ambedkar in his famous Annihilation of Caste speech says that um, Hinduism um, as a religious system must be destroyed in order for um, us to get rid of, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he does use the word destroy yeah. um, in order for, for, for this um, abomination of caste to be abolished. Um, however, when the um, Jatpat Thorak Mandal, which is the group that invited him to speak, is basically like, you have to get rid of this line, he says in his letter that it should be clear to anyone what I actually mean by this line. So his own kind of contestation is that he's not actually saying that he wants to destroy all of Hinduism as it exists in its entirety, but that he wants to get rid of this because he feels that caste is imbued itself into every aspect of Hinduism, right? Then he feels that the whole system has to be dismantled. That's his claim. His claim is not that the whole system itself doesn't have merits to it. And I think those two messages often get conflated. But then secondly, what Jay Saibipa pointed out to us was that Ambedkar actually goes back on this position later when he speaks with Mahatma Gandhi, and there's a famous exchange of letters between the two of them. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, go ahead. I was just going to ask another no, question. No, he, he, he evolves his position a little bit. So this one line of Ambedkar, which is very famous because that's why he wasn't able to deliver that speech, yeah. ends up becoming the framework through which all the Ambedkarite movements understand Ambedkar's attitude towards caste, which is very strange. And, and I think it's a great disservice actually to Ambedkar because it reduces him to one quote. Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I asked you that question when you were talking about quality labs. So um, you were talking about the exporting of the caste into the U.S. context. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So, yeah, so equality labs thinks about caste not as a, as a social issue primarily, but primarily as a theological issue. So their political director um, on Twitter said that, you know, Hinduism can't be a part of progressive discourse until caste is eliminated. Um, Hinduism is inherently uh, an oppressive system. Uh, there was an event at the University of Michigan where a speaker, Kanchalai, who's also somebody who's kind of aligned with a lot of these movements in, in India, said that Hinduism is a form of spiritual fascism in contrast to Christianity and Buddhism, which are spiritually egalitarian. Um, this, this phrase that Hinduism must be dismantled or must be destroyed is often used at these types of events and by equality labs. Um, often using Ambedkar as kind of an excuse to bring them up. So, um, you know, from that framework then, if we think about Hinduism as the reason why progress is being blocked, then Hinduism becomes the object that we have to oppose. And so right is understood as being pro-Hindu and left is being understood as Mm anti-Hindu. And then, then, you know, Hindu Americans who are maybe of, of, who are born in India and, and are very familiar with that dynamic that happens in India, then export those same labels back and apply them back on the U.S. politics. And so everything gets very, very jumbled um, as, as kind of a side note. But I think, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, didn't uh, just this past uh, April, I think it was, um, it was, it's a, uh, it's a, it's an Ivy League school, starts with a B, I forget the name. Uh, just released, a, 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 I guess, a, a magazine or a, a journal on caste. Forget the, uh, forget which is it Brandeis? 
Yeah, Brandeis. Brandeis that's Brandeis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I read a few of those articles, and it does seem that there is a, a, a good, a good mix of people that are getting some of these concepts in a much more in, uh, indigenous sense, and a lot of people that are still viewing it from the mm -hmm. colonial perspective. So I mean, I, I'm hopeful that there's some, some change happening in how we understand it, but I, I don't know if, how, how, how much that's being pushed. I think, sorry, sorry to talk for so long on this topic, no, but I think, keep going. The, <laughs> I think at the undergraduate level, there's often very little um, nuance, um, mm -hmm. as, as kind of Induju was mentioning this, this idea about like, let's put our assumptions on the table and discuss openly, because oftentimes people have very similar values and very similar ways of thinking about things, they just operate under different sets of assumptions, right. uh, and different sets of conditioning and different environments and all that. Um, but in the social justice spaces on campus, specifically when they're applied to South Asia, I think there's very little room for debate or discussion. So, um, you know, going off the casteism thing, there's also this wholly against Hindutva uh, movement that happened right around the time when college campuses actually had to close down. So it yeah. happened right before then. Yeah. So, you know, this, this protest started out with the premise that we're going to use this day of holy, which is a day that is traditionally understood as a day where diversity is celebrated. Um, people of all different colors and shades come together and celebrate um, by putting color on each other. So everybody kind of gets melded into this one giant rainbow. And that's what we're going to celebrate. Um, right. We're going to oppose Modi. We're going to oppose the CAA. We're going to oppose everything that he's doing. It's a political protest. Sure. Now, as time goes on, the, the tenor changes completely because the day then becomes, oh, well, holy is actually a very oppressive day. It's actually the day that's celebrating the murder of Holika, who was a Bahujan Dalit woman, even though she's that, not yeah. a Bahujan Dalit woman. Um, so so it, 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 these things often get taken completely out of context, right? Yeah. As Induji mentioned, like whenever a dark person is kind of presented, yeah. they're presented as a Dalit person. So in some folk retellings or some comic books, Holika is probably presented as a darker skinned person. Yeah. And then that gets taken as, oh, she's a Dalit, she's a Bahujan woman. And then that gets back, back on to the social justice scene. Right, right. Oftentimes, Not to mention, she's, she's the bad guy in the story. Like, well, she's, I mean, that doesn't matter. Well, I mean, <laughs> he's hidden, first of all, like, it's fantastical, right? It's hidden Akash's sister who lived, right. you know, 400 billion years ago at some point. So I don't think we have these Dalit and those story uh, people well, or Brahmins or anything like that. Before. She like tried to kill a kid. So yeah. like, I'm a little bit okay with her getting killed. Yeah, I am too. But it, 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 even with the context of putting caste or anything on it, it makes yeah. no sense to me, right? It, it just makes sense. From the story itself, it doesn't, there's no caste element here, right? Like, for example, you, like even, even people like that take Ravana to be a great Dalit leader, you're like, but his caste was Brahmin. Yeah. He was he was a son of Pulistia. He was grandson of Pulistia. He was a Brahmin, well, right? So like I mean the same argument is made with, with Hiranyakashipu, right? That he yeah. is he's yeah. a Brahmin and for his sister is a Brahmin. Yeah, so you had uh, a kid and his own family kill his aunt. I don't yeah. I mean I don't so I mean what I'm I guess the point I'm saying is like even the functions like holy I think have fundamentally started from from in from some other communities, it wasn't a Brahminical thing. What happened is, right. uh, I think the Brahmins wrote about it in their in their text. They're like, okay, this is a celebration. It ends up coinciding with another celebration we have. 
let's map it all together. And it, it was, it's, it's, I mean, but, but this is, I, I, this is also what I find kind of frustrating is you can look at uh, the, the, the Smriti text at some level, but then go to a local temple. If you go to a temple in India, they have Stella put on us, right? Each temple has a Stella put on it, which is written by the people from that area. Right? So even temples that are historically Dalit or Shudra or Vaishya or whatever the temple they are, they have a Purana connected to that, that, that temple, which actually connects back into a story within the other Puranas. And they talk about like the diversity of, of practices and, and ideas. And, and, and I guess the frustrating thing to, for me is when, when you're talking, when you uh, part talk about how they're remapping it on, it's a selective remapping. It's, they don't it's choose... Total. Total selective. Ask if you ask anyone in social justice here who's a Dalit ally if they under if they know that Dalits were actually gurus in Hinduism, they would have no idea. Yeah. Right. I'm, They've completely erased all of that. Uh, like for you can look up for a certain way. Like for example, people hate on Rama, but in the Ramayana, he talks about Guha, Shabari. Both of them are outside of the Varna system, right? So I mean, Shabari is supposed to be uh, a. a, a not an outcast, but whatever they called it at that time, was something separate. And Guha was a Nishada, outside of the entire caste framework. And he still treated them as friends, as a relation. So the difficulty is you can pick and choose what you find to be oppressive. And which is why partially when I read Annihilation of Caste by Umbaker, I thought it was an amazing piece of rhetoric. Great rhetorical ability, really hits it hard. But as from a scholarly perspective, and even from a logic perspective, it has flaws. And, and, and to me, the concern is, and this is not, not that it's a, 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 a bad thing or wrong thing, like there is great injustice being done to people all across the world, constantly. And it's, part of this is a brahmanical system of, of a certain group of people over time that have implanted these mechanisms in society and it has maintained, right? But the problem is also we can't blame it as if it was just this ancient tradition because it took the moguls and then later on the British codifying it into a non-fluid system that created this particular problem that we're dealing with now. Like this is a separate problem from talking about what happened a thousand years ago in say Ramanujah's time when he said the temples are open to everyone and he lets in people and he has, you know, like devotees that are his, non-Brahmins and Dalits and Shudras. His teacher is uh, Goshti Purna, who is a, a Shudra. So you have these things that are so diverse back then, and then it becomes codified over time to a point where today it's, we really give a crap about people's castes. In, like, well, but I think what also gets lost in, in this idea that it's simply been calcified and codified sure, sure. is that if you look at the actual Brahmins who were living as Brahmins, who yeah. are actually doing what we're all, you know, we're supposed to do as Brahmins. Yeah. Um, they're dirt poor. Some of them are getting murdered for defending their temples. You know, like it's not as if they're all just sort of highfalutin urban high rise dwellers no. making tons of money. Those people are not actually living the life that a Brahmin is supposed to be living. That's right. not and, what it's about. And furthermore, I don't like, except for, from my understanding, there were a few kingdoms that did practice some sort of varna, like the Peshwas, were pretty hardcore uh, uh, castes. But uh, for a large part, uh, from my understanding of reading, even people like uh, I Kashwi and uh, Al Bruni, uh, Biruni, and all these other people, they tend to show that 
caste wasn't as important within society that we thought it was. Um, mm. and, and secondly, I, I, I do think that, that the fluidity of ancient caste makes it difficult to talk about who was what at that particular point in time. Because you're right, like people like Brahmins would probably not be wealthy at all. I mean, you're required not to be wealthy, to be honest. And then, but mm -hmm. like, but the wealth was usually sits with the Vaishyas, the power is supposed to sit with the Kshatriyas, and like the service is supposed to, the Shudras, by the way, are supposed to be even artisans. And like, uh, like not, I, I hate when people say manual labor, because part of it's manual labor, but it's also skilled labor. It, it's not, it's right. not just like, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, yeah. And then the untouchable thing is, to be honest, a very difficult thing to deal with. And I don't think we should be trying to whitewash any of that. That's just a terrible uh, aspect of our culture that that, that we have to deal with. Yeah. yeah. And that we have to deal with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and how do you how, how do you guys talk about it in HSC then um, right now? That's a good that's a really good question. So the way that I would think about it is we think about it more in terms of I think that this this dialogue kind of doesn't exist. Maybe it does exist in the academy, but it's it's kind of not the primary one. We think about it as kind of like a social institution, and yeah. we think about the incentives that may have led people to discriminate, rather than thinking about it as something that's theologically driven. Um, because you know, at some level, as a Hindu organization, seeing this in societies and communities that are close to us. Um, both within the U.S., but also when we go to India and, and kind of navigate the spaces that our families do, if we kind of reject the idea that Hinduism has a role to play mm -hmm. in, in getting rid of a lot of these atrocities, then we would be giving up our links to those societies. Right. And we give up our ability to really influence what they look like, right? right. So, so oftentimes I also think about, you know, what is the path forward? Mm -hmm. If you constantly demonize a religious tradition and say that it's the one that's responsible for casteism, the result is that people become very defensive about those traditions. Right. And that defensiveness, unfortunately, results in people rejecting the very idea that caste exists, that caste discrimination exists, rather. Right. right. So, you know, if we think about the path that needs to be taken by society, we do need to, we do need to approach it from a perspective of truth, obviously, but... The truth to me also is that this is not something that is purely theologically driven. At some point, people took decisions that were in their own personal interest to shut off social and of economic power from people who um, were at that time not in positions to oppose it. Right. And that's, that's not a religious decision, that's a political decision. Um, and thinking about it as somebody who studies you know, game theory applied to politics and something that fits kind of very naturally within that is that if you have power and you're the incumbent kind of class, right. right? If you have the cultural power, the social power and the economic power, then it makes sense that you would develop institutions that would try to guard against anybody else in the future who isn't of your community, let's say, from taking that back in the future. And I, I, I find that in, in academia and especially in the activist space, I'll say more, more because mm -hmm. I'm more confident about that, it seems to me that that this is never thought about from an institutional or incentive-based perspective. It's thought about only from the point of view that it's it's something that's codified within within the Manusmriti, let's say, or it's codified within other religious texts. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes examples are chosen chosen very selectively. So, um, Shambu, as you mentioned, Shambuk is chosen from the Ramayana, but yeah. they ignore Shabri and they ignore Guha. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned. So. 
Um, and this is also why a lot of times Dalit, Dalit Hindus are completely excluded from the conversation altogether. Um, and they kind of sit on this, this fence where they want to speak up about their Hindu identity and they want to speak up, up about their discrimination at the same time, but they find that there's these two opposite sides that one agrees with them on one issue and one disagrees with them on the other. And it becomes a very tight situation for them. And, and I think oftentimes people forget that most of the Dalits in, in the world identify as Hindu. Like that's a very important fact that gets kind of brushed under the carpet. And so how do we deal with that uh, kind of dynamic, right? It's not going to be by demonizing Hinduism itself because that's going to be the thing that actually limits progress and it's not true to begin with. It has to start from an understanding of how did we get here and what can we do as a society to make sure that we move forward. Right. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of Hindus that were supported by the CAA were Dalit Hindus, right? Yeah. Yeah. By and large. You didn't see that. You didn't see that at all impacting the ways in which organizations like Equality Labs yeah. uh, purport to support Dalit communities. Or right? for example, here, in Kashmir, right? Like the yeah. Balmiki community there. Exactly. Yeah. You didn't see them at all saying, well, this is anti-Muslim. It's not. This is anti-Muslim, but at least it's supporting. You didn't see them saying that at all. No. At least no. it's supporting Dalit. Like no. finally a step forward. Right. 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 And, and, but, but a problem I think is also this is it's become so identity centric. Like, you mm -hmm. know, uh, it, you know, even for Hindus, let's be honest. When you, when you yeah. find a lot of these Hindu people online that come in to say, you know, I'm proud to be Hindu and and oh, blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, I they're so anti-Muslim. They're so flagrantly hateful people. And you come to a point where you're just like, do I want to be associated with these kind of people that are like, I mean, let's be frank, like people love, uh, people like to say like, you know, Muslim responses to, to CAA is like rape threats, this, that, but Hindu people do the same terrible nonsense. White people in America do the same terrible nonsense to a, a, a female that, that probably didn't, uh, wasn't in the space before, but is now speaking out in the space. Like we know that's from like things like Gamergate. Now, I don't know if you've, you've read about this in America, where about video games where a female comes out and talks about the, the pure chauvinism and the, the terribleness within the gaming industry. And you get messages from people, gamers saying, you know, well, you know, you're, you're a bitch. We're going to rape you. All this other crap, terrible thing. But you see the same thing happen with, with Hindus and uh, all the other communities when the other community says something. And I think there's just this vitriol online is just disgusting. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I will say, the part of that that doesn't uh, get as much attention as it should is the continued attempts to abduct, convert the epistemic violence that's happening to Hindus and the right not to convert. I'm, I'm right. not saying that 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 at all like that that justifies right. uh, any kind of threats, but I think there's just this fatigue and exhaustion, right? That's people are like, when is the world going to acknowledge that we're sort of like the last indigenous civilization standing, right. and people are still trying to attack us? based on identity, not understanding that like our, my, our, our, our way of being, our blueprint of existing right. is being overridden based on A, these lies, B, these misrepresentations or this mapping of Western civilization, right. Western concepts or Christian concepts of what is right or Marxist or whatever you want to call it, whatever the, the catchword is uh, I mean, onto us. The, it, the, the, the part that's interesting when we talk about the social justice, racism and colonialism issue is like, for example, in the States, we're tearing down statues of Confederate 
soldiers, leaders, whatever it is. In a similar way, you know, like in, in, in America here, we've, I mean, not similar way, but Americans killed off native culture, entire, entire group, mm-hmm. genocide of, you know, hundreds of tribes. And, 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 and I'm not here saying that these tribes are perfect or were like right. these noble savages that were depicted. I mean, they, they had their own issues, whatever. But it was a genocide of that entire, entire group of people. If those people were around and were wanting to evict Americans, in some sense, or parts of America, I don't think people will be that upset. I don't think people will be upset about, hey, you're in our country, you're taking our land away from us, you treat us terribly, we want your statues torn down, right? Like George Washington, whatever. But in India, the same situations happen with like Aurangzeb. You, you change your road, Aurangzeb road to something else, you want to tear down a statue of Babur, the, even the temple issue, suddenly it becomes this matter of, of you're anti-Muslim. No, I mean, there's this history that these people have. I mean, even, even for example, Audrey Trusky, right in your neighborhood, buddy, uh, part of probably like a, a couple of stops down, you know, I was writing a whitewashing the history of Aurangzeb. So many uh, Sikhs I know that are scholars in this field would come out and be like, how can this person even say this? This is weird. our text, and she doesn't even talk about our text in her, in her whitewashing Aurangzeb about what he did to our guru and to our, 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 our community, right? So I, I can, when you look around India, the landscape of India, these holy temples and places that were there for centuries before demolished, and, and you think, well, if this was in the West and it was a native, a native uh, a people that wanted their land back, how would you respond? You'd be like, yeah. Well, I would say that's because, I don't know the percentage, but the bulk of indigenous people on this land were converted to Christianity. Yeah. So it's about identity and not epistemology. Right. It would still be it would still be based on identity. That's why it would be acceptable. But the indigenous people of India were not successfully converted. And that's an itch that the entire Western civilization needs to scratch still. I think that's a huge difference. And I think that's a huge reason why people find it hard to accept Hindus as indigenous, because they have this notion that indigenous people are people who have had everything stripped away from them and are a demographic Mm. minority. Mm. And Hindus have not had our religion or our actual civilizational blueprint or in, or sufficient remnants of it we've, we've had too much remains not enough of us were killed so how can we pos- and not enough of our knowledge was killed mm-hmm. and and we were not successfully converted so how can we call ourselves indigenous well i mean does this also go back to like the aryan invasion uh, theory and stuff where they'll say well obviously you guys aren't indigenous you guys came from, you guys are white guys coming in from the steps. Yeah, and I mean, and that's, uh, even though that's been sufficiently refuted, you know, across well, I multiple mean, disciplines, uh, it, it's uh, a, and the fact that it's a theory and not a historical fact doesn't seem right. to bother anyone from sort of saying, well, this is just what happened. Right. Um, and if you look at the origins, I don't know if you had a chance to watch um, Dr. Bakshi's talk, talk at Hindu University of yeah, America yeah. a few yeah, weeks yeah. ago. Like he cleanly lays out how it's like super like racist AF people who yeah. like came up with this theories and the reasons why those theories, right? Like the reasons why those theories were promoted and yet they're taught as if they're just fact. I see this in these sort of like decolonizing or indigenous, whatever social media spaces. And it's just, it's just fact. People don't yeah. even think of it as a theory. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty now, I mean, with the genetic data is also a little tougher, too, because the problem with the genetic data is genetic data shows movement of genes, not necessarily languages, not cultures, but there's so many 
so much, so many assumptions built into into the way we're even thinking about the flow of languages. And it's becoming right. increasingly difficult to have any conversation with anybody on these topics. And to be honest, hell, go to three like twenty five hundred years ago. What the F do we know about Plato or Aristotle? Like, and, and now we're trying to make determinations about 5,000 years ago, about entire yeah. movements of people. I don't know how, how, how well we're going to be able to do that. But I think then again, if we're going back to people instead of knowledge. Yeah. We know that the knowledge is from the land. Yeah, we yeah. know that that, in, that knowledge emerges from that land and it is tied to that land. And that's one yeah, of the yeah. markers of indigeneity and indigenous traditions right. is that it emerges from the land. From the land. So it's not about whether Kashmiri pundits or Kashmiri Muslims are genetically indigenous to that space. I see. It's that Hinduism is indigenous to Kashmir. Yeah. Islam is not. Right. Yeah. That's the argument. So that's why I say like decoloniality is about knowledge and not about bodies, not about people. So what would that mean? What does that mean for the Muslims and the Christians that remain within the Indian subcontinent? Are they to take on the civilizational ethos of, of uh, I guess, the Hindu or Dharmic traditions? I mean, if you look at it as a civilizational blueprint, then yeah. then yeah. I mean, if we're to use the sort of vernacular that we use around here, let's say the, the indigenous folks were not like, hey, you need to leave, but hey, we're right. going to use our civilizational blueprint. You're going to live by our rules because you're the set, you're the descendants of the settler colonists. Right. Well, that's who the Muslims and Christians are. They're the descendants of the settler colonists, and we're going to go with the indigenous civilizational blueprint of India. I, and you know, it's I, I agree with you. The the difficulty we also have today is we have now had Western values become universalized as they're mm -hmm. seen as now the universal values of all humanity, in yeah. some sense. Um, and, and, and it's frustrating because, you know, you hear people like Pinker and, and a lot of these scholars come out and talk about the Western Enlightenment values, but you stop for a second, you're like, free speech was a foundational value within India. It wasn't never codified that way, but we never had killings of people for speaking out and, and blasphemy. I mean, the whole movement of Buddha or anyone else that spoke out against the Vedas, which you would think would be the most sacrosanct thing in the universe, no one gave a crap. There are plays still around where they'll talk about sexualizing gods and goddesses written by uh, people that, that viewed the gods and goddesses as like imaginary creatures. It exists. They didn't die. The Charavakas kept on living. And I, so, like, for example, so what I'm saying is my long-winded response is um, the universality of some of these values are universal, not because it came from the West, but because they exist in partially also in Indian culture too, right? You have to look whether they came indigenously from various cultures to see if there's universality here. It's free, free speech is something that was very important to the Indian context, as was the plurality of, of people's ability to have faiths. You know, like what are the value that are they going to talk about here in Western? I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you bring up an interesting point in that you only need to make it a thing if it was not safeguarded or did not exist before. Right. Exactly. right? That's the only reason. So you need feminism if your baseline paradigm does not honor the feminine. Right. You need environmentalism if your framework does not honor the earth. Right. Uh, you need all of these things only if your thing doesn't already hold it or, right. or revere it. Which is why it um, came out of the Western world to a large part. <laughs> right. I, I right. mean, 
I, I don't think it's a matter of like going back to what was before because we see that, okay, what was before and you'll have different Hindus have different kinds of responses sure. to this, but like what we did before allowed all of this stuff to happen to us. So maybe we shouldn't do what we did before. <laughs> uh, right. Like allowed a thousand years of colonization to happen to us. Um, but I think there is some, I think it's like, okay, so what is contemporary Dharma, Dharmic civilization? Yeah. for the 21st century. I think mean, that's, that's a great question. Uh, what do you think it is? Ah. <laughs> ah. Parth? <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay, so, so to go back to, to what you said, Induji, like a lot of the times value systems are developed from what doesn't exist or what is kind of seen as a problem and seen as needing to enshrine limits on violence. Um, so free speech, but also the environmental movement, for example, in the US was a response to complete degradation of the environment in the 1970s. Uh, so thinking about a lot of these problems in the just in the opposite direction where you where you actually place value in the things that you are saying you value rather than saying that you don't value their destruction is like a key step, I think, in moving in the right direction. And that's a very Hindu idea. Mm -hmm. um, I think overall, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is a really broad and very big question. Like what, do, what is Hindu Dharma for the 21st century or even for the new millennium? It's even a bigger question. Um, given how old our civilization is, you could probably divide it up by millennia. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's too big of a question for me to answer at the age of 27. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you get some threads of it through the work of people like Vandana Shiva, right? Who is like very much yeah. situated as like a dharmic, I mean, she's, we call her an environmentalist or an eco yeah, yeah. advocate. Um, but it's not like separate from it or it's not an add-on or it's not, you know what I mean? It's not right. like the dharmic right. flavor. It's, it's, she's just enacting right. or engaging right. or an enlivening that part of dharma right. in her work. So I think it's like, okay, what do we enliven and how do we enliven it in all of these aspects as opposed like Parth was saying, rather than how do we correct? Right. Right. I mean, 21st century dharmas, uh, I think there's certain dharmas that exist eternally, right? Like ahimsa, satya, akrodha, yagish. These are like the qualities that that mm -hmm. still push us to to be better, right? Like nonviolence, peace. I know sabra bhuta hita for the trying to act for the welfare of all beings. And there's their eternal dharmas. And if we're going to talk particular dharmas, I mean that's that's maybe maybe it is codifying something like free speech, and maybe it is codifying something in the nature of. Uh, of equality amongst all people and all genders and and things that maybe people didn't think about before. I mean, they thought about it in a spiritual sense, right? Because the whole concept of Atman is the most equal thing that you can have ever, right? If if all all is one right. one being that way, I mean, what's more equal than that in in, in terms of the true spiritual nature of things? I mean, um, it goes beyond equality. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's it's a pure it's identity. Like way past. Yeah. Equality. Yeah, Which but for then. Yeah. yeah. Right, because for equality, you have two sides to an equation, and there's only one side. Right. Right. It just. It, it, so I mean, that's also Advaitic, which is I, I'm a Vishishta Advaitin, so I have a little different perspective on that. Also, also because Shankaracharya had a 
particular things to say against uh, women and other people, not to get moksha. Because you have to have Vedic knowledge to get moksha, shankaracharya. But the other acharyas later indicated that's not the case, and you can get it through other, uh, everyone can get it. So, so even, even like, like Vishwa Adilurya calls the, the Gita and the Mahabharata, you know, like this, this three Shudva, Shudra Veda, right? This is the Vedas for everybody. It's open to everyone. Mm -hmm. Through this text, you can have moksha, you can find equality, you can find everything. So, I, I mean, the universality, I, I, to me, being a traditionalist, when it comes to only one thing, the Mahabharata, I think that is the text for our dharma in any time and age. Because it, it gives you that, that flexibility of movement to, to find out what works. Um, but, I mean, to your other point, in, in the, where you were talking about how in vacuums, um, it's only when you have a, 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 a lack of something that the issue comes like feminism. I mean, but we do know, I mean, India or Hinduism at a large part isn't perfect. It has a lot of flaws. Like women had, let's be frank, women had a great role, not a great role, had a much more substantive role within the Hindu framework for history than most of the West did. Better framework, not equal, not, 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 not even saying that, but they had a place within the system where they had voice, they had certain ability. They weren't treated equally. But that's something that feminism can help solve in, in modern Hinduism, right? Like in, in, in the sense of education, in terms of, equal opportunity, the freedom to choose to be married or not, or, or to you know, have a life in a way that's not subservient to the husband or family. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on that? I mean, since I'm not a woman, I, I, don't, I haven't had that yeah. experience. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing, right? Like I've gotten into conversations with staunch anti-feminists from India because of the ways in which, you know, feminism has been weaponized and, and used, you know, in particularly anti-Hindu ways in India. Right. And my response has been, you know, like if it weren't for fem feminism, I wouldn't be alive, I would have died in childbirth because it's because yeah. of feminism that were, advances were made in, in maternal health. Um, and so I can't say that there aren't real material, practical things that the sort of contemporary problem of Western civilization imposing itself everywhere yeah. like necessitates that kind of feminism to exist in contemporary Indian spaces, for sure. I think it's a conversation to have, and I think it's to be reclaimed locally as opposed to it being imposed in the way it has, you know, currently. Um, and I think it's also, I think it's powerful that you're going back to something so uh, dialogical and narrative-based like the Mahabharata. I think that's really important. Those, it's not, obviously, it's not just a story. It's obviously yeah. more, it's our way of understanding and engaging, right? Yeah. In everything. And so I think, how do we enliven that? You know, like I just got, right before we got on this call, I just got a text from my um, Perima and Peripa and they were like, we just watched the latest Mahabharata. Like we were addicted. We stayed up till two o'clock every night. Like we couldn't stop watching it. And it has that quality. Like right. even the 1980s version. Oh. Like, it's horrible in terms of special effects. It doesn't even stand values, up terrible. to like, like does not stand up to even 1980s standards in terms of special effects. And yet, like it stands. Would Lord of the Flies hold up with that level of like special effects? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Not Lord, of the Rings. Lord of the Flies, not Lord of the Flies. Would Lord of the Rings hold up or would any sort of, would the Avengers, for instance, yeah, yeah. hold up no. with that level of cardboard moving across no. the screen for 10 days as an arrow type of special effects? Absolutely not. So there is something 
timeless and like eternally young and youthful and relevant and contemporary about that, right? Right. And so how do we enliven that today for us, I think is, is just feels so much more uh, refreshing and inspiring, uh, I think, than like codification, yeah. which feels not emic at all. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just read uh, recently again, so I go through Mahabharata pretty often regularly um so i i don't know if you know about the dialogue between sulaba and uh janaka um so this is a, a, in the shanti parva it's a conversation between this female sage so uh she comes to janaka to to get knowledge from him because she hears that janaka is this great you know uh Rishi, so he has knowledge of brahman and and she knows how to read the minds so she when he is when he's thinking in his head he's thinking Here's this woman trying to get knowledge from you. How can this woman get knowledge? She probably wants something from me. She wants probably my, to pass on my seed or whatever it is. Um, so he's thinking in, in a very male-centric, and she rips him apart in the conversation saying, you saw me as a woman as wanting something from you that you thought was physical. I wanted something in your, in your mind, but I now see that you don't even have that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I had this before, and I came searching in the wrong place in this gendered world of, of engagement. It's, it's such a fascinating dialogue where mm -hmm. it's it just, but there's numerous dialogues like that throughout the Mahabharata where you see these, these relations between individuals flipped on its head where the person that has supposedly weaker or less intelligent or whatever, or who is presumed to be that way, comes out with the knowledge to change people. Like Vishwamitra and the Chandala again. There is this great conversation about Vishwamitra. I'm, you might have heard of it, where Vishwamitra wants to, he's in a famine, and he, he goes to Chandala's house. And then uh, the Chandala schools of Bandarma. <laughs> this is, but it's just, this is why the text just is beautiful in that sense. It, it, it tells you what the stereotype is, and it flips it on its head and saying, yeah. what does all this stuff matter? At yeah. the end of the day, what is these castes? What are these roles? What are these, all that matters is the Atma, right? At the, this, the yeah. cycle of violence to end, the cycle of subjugation of oneself and others to end. Just a, a beautiful text that way. So I just, I mean. Yeah. So then the question is like, how do we enliven that in the spirit and ethos of the space and the society versus, you know, like you look at the ways in which Hinduism is represented in yeah. contemporary media on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it is. And, you know, what we hear mm -hmm. from media producers in India is that, for them to feed their families, the easiest way is to sell this really sensationalist anti-Hindu garbage. And that's how they feed their families, right? They're not, you know, high-end producers or right. script writers. So they're just trying to make a living. And this is what these media houses are buying up. Right. And so this has now become the perception of what ought to be. And, and I think especially in India, you get that, you know, does art imitate society or society imitate art conversation is like particularly profound in right. India, I think given especially the mass production of media. Sure. Um, but how do we, you know, there's a reason that, and there's a, a wisdom in the fact that our knowledge is, is most powerfully handed down through storytelling in this way. And, but, but I think right? to your point, yeah. the, the big point that I think that it, it, how do we address this is partially, I think like, People have to learn our traditions, learn the shastras, and and I and I think it's not just identify as Hindu. And on top of learning the shastras, we have to get away from the spirituality, the mysticism 
that people mm -hmm. associate with Hinduism. Hinduism, in, in, in many ways, is a very lokika faith or tradition. It's focused on how to live in this world. What values do you bring from the spiritual world? How do you bring that to this world? It's, 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 it's not to say that there's another world out there that's spiritual. It's there. It's here. It's at the same level that we are. How do we make it come out of ourselves? And is, mm -hmm. to, is this churning, this engagement with, with the Shastas, with these thoughts, with others like yourselves, and, and bringing, this, bringing people into that conversation, different experiences? And, and we have to, and I, and I say we because in some sense we are talking about these things, but we're one of the few people out there there are. We have to like, and you guys are doing this more than probably I am, but engage with others and bring that knowledge to them because otherwise we're just going to see this drivel that we see constantly on Netflix yeah. and on Indian cinema and Indian TV, where the only time you talk about Hindu thought is Om Jai Jagadish Hare or some some little thing like not that it's little, but just something so minuscule on the larger set of what knowledge we bring to the table. I think that's I really think, well said. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. Go ahead, Parth. I was just going to say I think that's really well said, and I think making the traditions available to people and making them see that they can actually be voiced and and thought about in the 21st century is kind of step one to even thinking about your broader question, which you brought up, which is what does Dharma look like in the 21st century? And I think we're so, uh, we've devoted so much time and energy and attention to just that first step because it's yeah. been such a powerful roadblock for our community that, you know, personally, I think that's for me is, was the challenge in even thinking beyond that, what would it actually even look like? Yeah. Um, because I think when you when you don't have those role models, um, you know, Vandana Shiva is an excellent one that Indija yeah. mentioned. But if you don't have the, those role models in a in a broad array of different uh, settings, it's 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 kind of hard to think about how your traditions can even be applied into the 21st century. Um, you kind actually, of have to bootstrap that for yourself. Sorry, go ahead. I I was gonna say I think actually you brought up um, Jay Sidi book earlier. I think his inspiration in his argument. Oh, around yeah. Sabarimala is super dharmic and super inspired in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. just, everyone was like, oh, whoa, they did not see that coming at all, right? Like his argument there. Um, so I think it's, but but that comes from being immersed, as you were saying, in like in in living this and in, in having it be the ocean that you're swimming in. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so how, how do we, how do we enliven that? How do we, um, Break down these dichotomies. So, so there's like all the dichotomies that you're describing in the media, where it's either violent or reverent, and then all of a sudden you're you're associating yeah. Hindu reverence with violence, right? Because yeah. mm -hmm. they're in the same thing. Or the dichotomy between home and school. You see that a lot, uh, and we probably experienced it a lot growing up here. Of like home looks looks one way, school looks another way, and then you know, and I read about this a lot, and I, I and I think Parth and I talk to families a lot about this. Kids want to be good people, Hindu kids growing up here, Hindu kids growing up anywhere. Right. But if they're not taught that they're, that Hinduism and Sanatana Dharma is a framework for exactly that, right. of like, yeah. how do we create and sustain a just society or a righteous society or, or a society at all, when we encounter all of this injustice or all of these inequities around us that right. are constantly reinventing themselves, so it's never going to be finished. Right. Uh, they're going to turn to whatever they're they're taught at school, and so we have to come. I mean, like, if we don't come up with this, I see in like two or three generations, like, we're toast. It it be, we become an artifact that's just preserved. 
right, as opposed right. to a living, breathing. Do you think that's um, the case here in America, or are you saying also in India? I mean, I'm. It's hard for me to assess India as well, but what I hear from people who you know may just feel despondent and and pessimistic is that. Uh, you have a lot of what you described exactly as Hindu as an identifier and not necessarily yeah. someone who's ensconced in the tradition. Yeah. Uh, and tradition, even, Parth, when you said that word, I was like, I think even that word, because of this universalizing of modernity versus coloniality mm -hmm. and tradition sitting yeah. in, in the latter, I think it's almost like, okay, maybe we start, start to think about this as not just a tradition, but like this contemporary Dharmic paradigm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And like, and, and, and talk about it as contemporary rather than as tradition. I agree. I mean, that's a, it's a great way to frame it. You know, I think maybe this is a project that we can all try to do on our own is what does Dharma mean in the 21st century? What is, what, what, we do, what do we need to bring to the table? You know, like, to be honest, like, I, I enjoy Rajiv Malhotra to an extent, and he's a great guy, but he's also a much older gentleman. And much of what needs to be done is by people at our age. Yeah. Um, because younger, yeah, yeah, younger, yeah, younger, younger than us too. Um, just to push, push these these ideas and these thoughts because, and, and this is always a, a difficulty is when people people directly that come from India have a very different mentality about how to address uh, people here than people here do. Right? We, you know, in different ways we speak, different ways we 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 know what how to connect to people here. And I think that's somewhat missing in. in the older generation and we have value to bring right? i think that we should show that reverence and connection to the older generation but i think some of it has to be passed on to us to kind of run with it and and, and because we're also unmoored in some sense from the colonial baggage the same way our parents weren't um i i, I think we should you know i mean this is the kind of stuff i i enjoy um do you guys have any other thoughts or comments or topics? Yeah, I'll just yeah. add on to that. And this is something that I feel like I'm saying every time I talk to someone and every time I go on social media yeah. is that we just need to get more. You see this dichotomy because of how institutions were set up in India, yeah. that the folks who have this colonized viewpoint on India are in the humanities and the folks yeah. who don't seem to are in STEM. Yeah. Uh, or something like medicine, maybe like, yeah. like a technical type of, of career. And then that same thing gets translated here. And I hear this from, from these first generation immigrant parents that come here, they advise their children away from the humanities because they've associated that. And even more so because of voices like Rajiv Malhotra's, yeah. that if they send their kids into the humanities, they'll lose them, yeah. right? And so what happens? You don't get a lot of Dharmic screenplay writers or novelists or historians True. or teachers or lawyers or political economists or you know like right. any of these other fields that are actually sitting within social institutions and not just private institutions right um and so i think whatever we can do whether that's like an ongoing online dharmic humanities career fair or something right, right. where we're sharing and like actually sharing with the the younger generations and maybe our, our some, some of our younger peers like that this is what we need to sort of flood with our natural proclivity towards inquiry and intellectual right. pursuit and, and, and artistic expression and all kinds of expression right. because we're not doing that. We're not expressing, we're venting on social media right? and, and kind of being like jerks in some places. That's like the Absolutely. most public face we have. It's like, Oh, the Hindus are jerks. Like, I don't know if I want to side with them, even if they're, they're right about some stuff because they're being real jerks right now. Yeah. Like 
we need to address the jerks for sure. Uh, and Parth can speak more to this, but like we have really clear, vibrant voices in HSC, in high school HSC, and they're just constantly getting shut down and uncle slain and auntie slain by the generation that you're describing. So Parth, I have a question here uh, for you. Uh, so because you're part of HSC, I was part of HSC, how does it feel to be an RSS ideologue? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've been accused of that too. So. Right, you know? Yeah, that's really bad. Um, yeah, so actually on that point, um, I, I've been accused of being an RSS ideologue from, from just about everybody. Um, I was accused of it by Hafsa Kanjwal of Stanley Kashmir. Okay. Um, I was accused of it by Priyambada Gopal. Um, she also told me to go drink cowpus. Um, so in name and not just by organization. So they've kind of upgraded in a sense. Um, I, I, I find that what you're saying and, and this, a lot of this conversation kind of has, has come to this point where we need to kind of learn to listen to one another. Um, yeah. And that goes, that goes both with people who disagree with us yeah. um, in the academy, I think, because a lot of times younger undergrads, even graduate students, they have a very particular view of things because that's what they've been taught. And people think of the academy as something that's very authentic and they take that knowledge and, and they kind of imbibe it. And it's probably true also that they just haven't heard a lot of different perspectives. Sure. That's something that I've heard a lot. Um, there was a student in HSC, her name was Isha Singh mm -hmm. um, at, at Rice University. Um, and they had a I, was, I guess I would call it a town hall about what was happening in Kashmir that was organized by the South Asia Society there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she talked about what was happening to the, to the Kashmiri pundits and, and why the, the, the abrogation of Article 370 would be a good thing for the Balmuki uh, Dalit community that was yeah. living in, in Kashmir. And, and a lot of people didn't know, know these things, right? Because how would you know it if you just follow it at a surface level and you don't, uh, aren't exposed to it specifically. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think what Induji said really resonates with me as well. Um, having parents encourage their kids to pursue whatever their interests are and not just focus on the standard engineer, doctor, lawyer, uh, because we lose out a lot of creativity. Um, yeah. One thing that I've learned, uh, as Induji mentioned, is that especially over the last year or so is that working with with younger people I've learned how creative they are yeah, yeah. and they're they're very very dynamic um and savvy to your point Muganda, they're savvy yeah like they know how to engage yeah and and I just see this this energy I really think that you know seeing that spirit has given me a lot of hope you know you're talking about is it going to die out in two or three generations I have I still have some hope that it will um based on based on the kind of you know, this moment has been so negative for so many different reasons, but I think it's also gotten people to realize how empty some of the, the narrative around Hinduism has been in the academy. And I think as students uh, wake up to that fact and, and also um, develop the, the community and develop that sense of belonging where they're able to actually realize that there are other people who hold these views, it's not right. just them, and they feel more confident in voicing them, that's really what gives me hope. Uh, the only other thing I would say is that on the point of, of having an open dialogue and having a conversation yeah. with people, it's also very important for parents to have uh, conversations with their children, um, not um, make assumptions about why they're thinking certain things. Um, 
I found also that parents tend to not know as much about U.S. history as maybe they should. Um, we have to remember that, or they have to remember rather, that their kids are raised in the U.S. education system. There's a certain history or a certain exposure to ideas which, which the parents, that context doesn't often exist for them. So I think it's about bridging that gap and coming to a common understanding. I've heard so many stories of, of kid, children being turned off even more by their parents um, saying that, you know, what you read in the news are lies, this is not true, all of those things, because then, I mean, for, for a kid, they think, well, our parents are saying this is fake news, who else says that this is fake news? Right, right. And then that's kind of how they, they, they interpret that. Um, so, so I think it's really important for, for parents and children to have that conversation around, like, why, why do you think in this way? What are um, your assumptions? What are you bringing to the table, like Inuji was saying? Um, and I think that's that's the best way. That's the only way that you can really have a, dial a dialogue across people who don't agree. Have you guys seen that show Rami on Hulu? No. Okay. No. So uh, so Rami Yusuf is an Egyptian comedian, and he came out with a show, two seasons, where it's all about like the Egyptian Muslim uh, experience from New York. Right. It's well done. It's a. Uh, it, it goes into the you know very much about like the nature of being Muslim and Egyptian and American in, in America. And even, even uh, what's his name, uh, Aziz Ansari, my, my Tamil brother, um, you know, he did his show, which is, it's interesting too, because it's, his name is Dave Patel, but he speaks Tamil and he's a Muslim. And you're just like, okay, this, there's a lot of weird, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like if you know it, but maybe he meant to be an every man, like every Indian. But I guess my point to this is, I, I mean, I've been in Hollywood, or I'm not in Hollywood, but I know people, my family's, uh, I have members that are part of the Daisy community here. The, 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 and, and like Indu, Indu said, no one here, none of them know anything about their traditions or cultures or history, right? For, for much of them, being Indian being is just, I put on the Bollywood, I wear the Indian costume, eat Indian food, watch Hassan Minaj, and if I get on the TV and I'm brown, that's all that's, that's necessary, right? It's not about what, what am I depicting in that recent show that came out with Kali, uh, Mindy Kaling's uh, Never right. Have I Ever, Never Ever, which I mean, parts of it were good, but my concern again was what about Hinduness comes out there outside of mm -hmm. this this uh, temple scene, which was right. all yeah. of the well, too. according to Equality Labs and their friends, it's, Indians, uh, it's it's Savarna. Brahminical hierarchy, and it's actually really fascinating. You see this trend of of Tambram female scholars yeah. denouncing it, like making a point of denouncing the show and saying that they're ashamed of their cast, they're ashamed of the show, they couldn't believe how overt it was. And then when they're pushed to talk about how overtly Brahminically supremacist the show is, yeah. um, they're like, actually, it's really subtle. These are the little things that you might catch, and they're totally like 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 what not, I, I, I don't i haven't watched the show but some of some of the conversations i've seen around it yeah. the examples they've given are like oh well they're vegetarian <laughs> well i mean i, I don't it's think crazy. people under i mean people understand like 70 percent of india is vegetarian right or 60 percent something like that but also they don't it's understand lot, that yeah. some some brahmins especially in the u.s are not practicing vegetarians yeah. and some non-brahmins are yeah, right? Yeah. Like, right. it's not, 
I, I think mean, it was like their their name and their you know I forget what what some of the other things were, and you know these were Hindus responding to this. They're like, well, that makes no sense. But the way they talk about it, if you don't know anything about Hinduism, it sounds totally logical that they're like decoding it for everyone. Right. Right. I mean, I saw the show and I was like, I didn't get a sense of Brahmanism from it. Like they went to the temple and you had everyone there. I, I, I don't know what it was. It wasn't a temple really. It was just, uh, you know, they filmed yeah. it at a high school or something. But right. was, I didn't get a sense of Brahmanism out of it. And there's some, some things where you can get a sense of Brahmanism out very clearly. But this I didn't get that sense. Because first of all, Mindy Kaling, I, I don't even think she's Brahmin or not. I don't know anything about her cast. But so, but her work doesn't seem like it's influenced by anything but what it means to be. She's Tamilian, though, I think, right? I think she's Tamilian, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I saw elements of Tamilian there. They spoke Tamil. They called, they, you know, she called her Uncle Periapa. And so the Tamilness came out uh, and partial Hinduness, but nothing about Brahminness. I think, I think the point is from these minions is that if you're not <laughs> if you're not openly sort of declaring and disavowing and claiming your whatever and casting aside cast and blah 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 then you have what is now called what is it savarna unconsciousness that's where right. you're operating from wow right and you're I living in a in a what my friend calls jokingly calls it he calls it saravarna bhavan to make people <laughs> But you're living in like a Savarna oven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great line. I love it. I mean, obviously, this this uh, this conversation, if they hear it, will be, I don't know, like, I am Brahmin, I guess. Uh, you're Brahmin. I don't know Parth. I don't know what you are. I'm not. Yeah. So, but we're probably all upper caste. So this is Savarna, like, nonsense. Oven. Yeah. So it's a Savarna oven. But, I mean, this is the pro It's so weird to me because it's like, I've never, ever thought about caste. Ever, right. I've, that's, I've a, that's a part of your unconsciousness. No, no, that's no. The accusation. What, what no, that's I'm the saying, accusation yeah. that's made. But I've never, like, I might know someone's cast by their name. Do I give a crap? F no. I mean, I was married before, and my ex-wife was like, not, not. She was non-Brahmin, right? Like, I didn't care. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I don't care what people's casts are. It's not. I mean, I feel like if we're, are, are we? Are they sliding in just by being an identity? You are like automatically like in the matrix. I'm downloaded all this knowledge about cast and I am now this thing. I mean, that's the part of, that's the part of the unconsciousness, which is You're suffering. So it's, it's like the same argument that I think is actually quite sound made against like the sort of logistical um, failing of how Robin D'Angelo frames white fragility, which is right. like, you either acknowledge that you have it, and if you don't acknowledge that you have it, that means that you have it. Right. So you're, you're, you're uh, f if you do, if you're f if you don't. Basically. Yeah, it's the original sin. Yeah, which is yeah, which is ins it's insane to me, because I mean I I don't know like I'm sure in, I don't know I mean but Jersey and and New York are a little more I guess they were a little more uh, had a bigger presence of Indians than Southern California did when I came. I mean, I didn't grow up with a single other. I was the only not white person in my school until my sister started. Okay. Wow. I didn't grow up with anyone. I also grew up in South Jersey, so I wasn't around a lot of Hindu people either. Um, there were some other. It was I wasn't the only person, but yeah, it was. Uh, it it wasn't like uh, Edison. Right. I mean, it was that that recent case just came out today, right, or a couple of days ago about Cisco about the uh, right. 
which is again the caste issue which you know i mean i'm sure if they're from india in some sense they probably have some of this encoded into their well, what's, what's interesting and what's not necessarily happening, it, it's important to look into it. Yeah. And at the same time, what I've heard some concerns, uh, the concerns I've heard emerge from some Hindu voices is that there are people who are in these Christian Dalit communities who are intentionally promoting this narrative in the U.S. So it's not an inter-Hindu inter issue, right? Yeah. Uh, Intra-Hindu issue. It's an inter-religious issue of some kind, if it is that. Yeah. But they haven't released the name of of the of the accuser, which I don't know what the legality around that is. If it's if but, it's EOC, they won't release the name until they decide to go forward with it or not. Um, okay. So, but if this, because uh, I don't think they this the the government filing the case, California, so it'll be EOC, um, or their employment board. So they won't release the name um, until a little bit down the line. Um, so, so what yeah. I'm hearing, which is actually really reasonable from right. these folk, is that. We don't have enough information to know what is actually going on. Yeah. But we know that the narrative and the assumption that's immediately going to be drawn from this and also what could emerge, you know, and, and Parth, I think you made this this point, um, the fact that they're now interfering within a religion and yeah. within a religious framework is is really concerning, especially because we don't even know if it's actually happening within religion because right. the U.S. is ignorant about these things and wouldn't know that a Dalit could necessarily not be Hindu because, you know, it has been sort of, it has migrated across religions in, the, in India. Now, would it change? Would, would the way we think about it change if it was intra-religion? I don't know. I mean, would then the case be made that it's not about caste, it's about religious discrimination? I, I don't know. Right? I mean, yeah. So I, I just because don't... As it, as it stands, uh, they're saying that they have no problem crossing, permeating this border within a religion. Yeah. Right. And interfering within a religion. But what happens is if it appears to, mm. and there's no integrity in that, and it's actually between religions, and then it's about something else, or, you know, I mean, the facts right. change when it's right. between religions as opposed to within a religion. And then also the precedent changes when it's between religions versus within a religion. Yeah. One of, no, I was just going to say one of the things that I, I personally found disconcerting about the way that this was covered from a legal perspective was that it was talking about the discrimination having a religious exemption. Oh, did that it say that? To, in one of the articles that I read about the Cisco case, um, right. uh, I forget which outlet it was, but they were mentioning that it's it's an open legal question as to whether this type of discrimination would also have a religious exemption to it because caste because caste is part of the Hindu hierarchy or whatever, right? Um, I mean, and I think that type of language and that type of legal argument potentially being used by the defendants actually in this case would be Terrible. devastating and i Terrible. think yeah exactly and i think that hindu organizations have a you know because because they don't they don't have any locus standi in the case necessarily but if you yeah. put out a public statement which says actually no if 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 there were to have been any discrimination it would not have a religious exemption i think that kind of would put the issue at rest and then you know in some sense, the other side can't say, well, why did you issue this statement, right? It kind of allows you to kind of take control of the narrative. Right. Um, right. Where the other side is, should be should be happy that you're making that statement, right? There's no, there shouldn't be any negative conversation. Well, I mean, if, if they do make that argument about religious basis, there's going to be a whole long list of people they got to get to come and say, well, it's part of Hinduism and we know this XYZ 
and in some way this might end up becoming like another California uh, textbook controversy. It's also or, a really perverse way. It's really perverse because you would have to the Hindu, the I guess Hindu. I don't know who the defendants are, but they would have to get the anti-Hindu scholars to come and defend them and say that this there is a religious exemption within Hinduism for caste discrimination. Right. Right. It's yeah. a very it's a very perverse. So I really hope that yeah. that doesn't happen. Well, they'll probably call in like equality labs on both sides, right? <laughs> you know. It's gonna be crazy. It's gonna uh, be crazy. Yeah. I mean, but this is a pro I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm making fun of equality labs, but at the same point, I know they're coming from a probably coming from a very good place where they find issues with people being treated terribly, and I just think their intentions might might be right, might be good. Maybe they're just not informed or care to be informed enough about deeper issues. And well, I mean, their political director is Bangladeshi Muslim and has not once spoken out against the the genocide and treatment well, it, and persecution it, of Hindus in Bangladesh. Isn't there their, their, their head person, Ben Maurice Sundarajan? Ben Maurice, yeah. Yeah, but she's, you know, Tamilian and, and um, I don't know her religious background or even her caste background. I assume she's Dalit because she's... Well, that's I'm, the thing. No one is able really to determine what her caste background is. She presents herself as Dalit and, and engages as if she is, but she it's could all be. pretty unclear. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I try to just assume that they have the best intentions. Everyone has best intentions. And it's just, they're just wrong in some things. And, you know. I, I, yeah. I, <laughs> Go ahead. Go I've ahead. just seen a lot of really, um, there's a lack of integrity in how they're engaging in a lot of spaces, which makes me question. Oh, I, I agree with you. Know. But, but um, I, lack of integrity just means, I think, for especially in this day and age, it's all about winning narrative battles, right? At the end mm. of the day. And it's, it's your intent, you know, like people's intent can be good, but it's all about winning. And and this is, you know, I think that, that, that can be problem. That's a problem in and of itself. I mean, I think it, it and then, you know, of course I'm coming from my own set of assumptions, yeah. but all, all signs point to them simply wanting to dismantle Hinduism as opposed to standing up for persecuted religious minorities in South Asia. Oh, I, I, in large part, I agree with you because I have not seen them take to task anyone else outside of in, in the Southeastern region for anything else except India or Muslim issues and caste issues here and there. Mm -hmm. They've I've never seen them take Pakistan to task. Never seen them take Bangladesh to task for anything. And 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 uh, come on, let's just be frank. Pakistan's not anywhere in the same realm of of human rights uh, support right. or anything. That India would be it's just not there, and yet we don't hear a peep. And I mean, they are so, uh, circumspect in large part that way. I will agree with yeah. you. Yeah, and they've they've um, you know I've heard. I mean, these are just stories, and I've heard them secondhand. But they've you know outright they outright bullied a Dalit artist for receiving funding grant funding from a Hindu foundation in the U.S. Wow. And he made them return the funding, and then didn't actually give them funding to replace that. Right. And so to me, that's like intentionally harmful behavior and not just misguided, misinformed behavior. Yeah, But you don't know that's true. You just heard it, right? I've just heard it. Yeah. I don't know that it's true. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, uh, I and, but, but we've also seen, um, you know, I, I supported a, a non a sort of grassroots nonprofit organization in their, in sort of publicizing their letter in response to Equality uh, Labs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's on, on my Medium profile, and I'm happy to share that with you. Sure. And, and they point out how um, 
the organization does everything exactly what you described. They, they stand up for everyone except for Hindus. And what do they have to say for it? And uh, member, either representatives of or allies of the organization and of SALT, I think, um, sort of personally attack this, this grassroots, grassroots organization that's, that's simply doing work like out in the field right. to support, you know, whatever their local community. It's as grassroots and local as you can imagine in terms of serving the community and not just the Hindu community, the community. But the crazy part is they're getting bigger. They just had Cornell West on. They had a, mm -hmm. you know, they're part of this PBS worldwide uh, uh, mm -hmm. cast, cast uh, program that came out. Um, I mean, they're behind everything. They're behind any sort of legal action that you see happening. They're behind it. Um, yeah. They're there. They're the expert experts behind it. I mean, I, I would at some level, if they're a nonprofit, we should be able to see who their fund, funding is. And if you see a good amount coming from Christian, you know, you know, worldwide Christian mission sources, I mean, you know, we have a sense of what's going on here. That's much more easy to determine. Right, right. Uh, I think go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, sorry. I'm just going to say one one thing about uh, Equality Labs. A lot of their um, public actions now, right, and a lot of the um, basis for why yeah. caste is being discussed in the U.S. is their caste report um, yeah. that they published, I think, two years ago. That's right. Uh, also with Cornell West uh, being at the launch. Um, if you look at the actual methodology that they use in the caste report, it's terrible. It's, it's very suspect. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, I was looking at it and I was like, this, 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 this is really bad. The survey methodology is really bad in particular because the central claim that they're making is that Hinduism is responsible for a lot of this discrimination. And, um, you know, they have the, these charts in the, in the yeah. report where they talk about like the triangle, the pyramid of caste hierarchy and all those things. But if you look at the groups they surveyed, there's not a single Hindu group in there. Yeah. 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 So, your sample is obviously not going to be representative of the South Asian community because if you're if you're talking about caste in South Asia, then it has to include groups that I would identify openly as Hindu. You've polled groups that openly identify as Muslim. Why aren't there um, people from the Hindu um, religious institutions also being surveyed? The other thing is that if your central claim is that this is something that is endemic to Hindu uh, institutions, then why aren't those institutions actually being surveyed? Why aren't people at those institutions, rather, who belong to those institutions being surveyed? And I think the argument would be kind of what Induji was alluding to earlier, which is that people of those institutions have a sovereign consciousness, so they would they would bias the results because they would deny that caste exists. Yeah. Right. So there's this underlying assumption, and yet it becomes axiomatic because you're eliminating those people on the basis that they would bias the results. But then you're saying that, of course, those people are the ones who are responsible for it and caste is endemic to these institutions. Yet you haven't actually polled those institutions to verify whether or not it is true. Right. So it's not an exercise in data. It's an exercise in signaling that you have yeah. this report, right? Right. That's it's, all it is. It's the antithesis of either popper science or of Kuhn science, you know, it's, 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 it's not even science at this point. It's just, I want to, I want a result here. I need, I need information to back it up. Let me just yeah. get that information. Yeah, it's really sad. It's, it's terrible. Um, we've been going for like two and a half, almost two hours and minutes. <laughs> uh, we can keep going. I'm down, but I'm sure you guys have stuff to do. Um, you have any other points that you guys would want to discuss or? 
Um, I actually, uh, one, maybe yeah. last one, um, you know, we're talking about institutions and one of the, the fears I hear from different folks is that um, exactly this from this report, we're talking about religious institutions. So that uh, mm -hmm. Hindu institutions, Hindu organizations, not only are they now suspect, but, but it's a incumbent upon them to take proactive measures to ensure that they don't come under investigation for whatever kind of discrimination might be the case. So like a Hindu temple might have to overtly write in its bylaws or charter, whatever, that they don't cast discriminate. And I, I wonder like, what does that mean? What does that look like? I, I throw that to you since that's your area. To me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was like, um, I mean, it, it would be interesting. I mean, because, you know, Gotra is also part of this mix too, right? So mm -hmm. at a temple, sometimes people ask for Gotra. Um, and I don't know because uh, I guess a lot of non-Brahmins will say Gotra is like Kashipa, right? And Kashipa right. is actually also Brahmana Gotra too. So it might not come off there, but people have a sense of that. Or they might use the name of a god, right? They might say Vishnu mm -hmm. Gotra, Shiva Gotra, especially in Tamil Nadu. I think they do more of that, Vishnu Gotra, Shiva Gotra, whatever. Um, and, but they actually, within various, a lot of these communities have their own Gotras, which I don't know about because I'm not part of those communities, right? But they do have their own Gotras. We know that because there's been numerous studies showing that there's Gotras for pretty much every group, including Dalits and everyone else. So I don't know, then is it okay to ask that question in, in, in the temple? Can, you know, when you do a Archana or Yajna, is, is that then become discriminatory? I, I mean, those are those are interesting questions, which I don't have an answer to. Um, because again, I mean, like this goes back to the point before is if, if we thought of these castes communities of people that were bonded together, I mean, actually let's take it back a step. Even when they tried, the British tried to, to codify these castes, they didn't know how to do it because every the, the definition they had for caste, every caste somehow broke. So they would be like, it has to be endogamous. Well, a lot of these castes aren't endogamous, they're exogamous, or they have to be birth-based, or they have to have a certain kind of job. Well, some of these castes don't even have those kind of jobs. They're not really based around jobs or, 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 or any of these things. Any, they have to have certain customs. Some of these castes don't even have, within the same caste, they don't have the same customs. So you end up having every definition that they try to say is a caste is, no caste fell into it. So you end up having definition of caste being just a conceptual thing with no grounding. It's just like this amorphous, it's like saying, you know, um, I was happy. You know, what is, what is happiness? happy mean? Oh, I was just happy. I mean, we have no sense, my happy and your happy are different. I don't know what that means, right? And in the same way, like caste for the British, they didn't know what that meant. Um, it, it, there's a book uh, you should read if you haven't read it already, Cast of the Mind by Nicholas yeah, Dirks. Yeah, he, he, he's good. And also, um, there's a other couple of ones that have gone through it, which is um, Prakash Shah wrote an anthology with uh, four or five other people um, called The Western Foundations of the Caste System. Um, it's a fascinating book that goes also into the, the kind of the methodology used by the British to create the caste system and goes into the the, the caste surveys and the correspondences and how these people that created these surveys are like, we don't know what this stuff is. We just have to make a determination and, and have these guys fill it out. 
So in many ways, what we're talking about is it's layered upon layered of of just some others, someone else's viewpoint of what these things mean. Even though internally, some ways we have a sense of what we mean by our our barnard. Actually, we're we're probably also confused. confused. I don't even know what my jati is. I know what my varna is. I don't know what my jati is. I don't know what my. I, I I just don't know. So I'm just like, okay, fine, whatever, right? So I I feel like when it comes to the temple and things of that nature, it's just going to be incredibly difficult to to navigate that with, with caste because we, we're having old, old traditions that have a different version conception of of gotra caste or varna and versus the new definitions in the modern legal parlance, and yeah. they just don't coalesce. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's something that we're going to have to address because I, I do see, and I hope this is not true, and I hope that this is not getting blessed, but I think that we are going to see Equality Labs and other organizations start to to go for our institutions here. Yeah, and another yeah. thing, to be honest, what, what I think more and more Hindus need to do is, and I try to do this on, on my, um, my sub-series part of Miru, it's called Miru Mantha, is engage with other traditions and find out about their ideas and mythologies. I don't see enough in Hindus out there talking about our traditions compared to Christian tradition or Muslim tradition or Jewish tradition. It's, it's very much, let's, it's, it tends to be very reactive. This is what the British did to us. Let's be angry about it. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's, why don't we engage in a formal way, get our ideas out there, not reactively, but in conversation and dialogue. I think that's kind of what is a better way to do it. So that's just my two cents. Yeah. Um, anything else, guys? No. All good. No? All good. Oh, thank you guys so much. It was such a great conversation. I, I, know, I know we could have talked more, but I know, Parth, you have some paper or work got to get done tomorrow. Um, and Indu, I'm sure you're super, super packed with a bunch of stuff, too. Um, so thank you, guys. Um, I will probably put this out next week. Um, oh. And uh, if you have any – where can people reach you if they want to reach you, actually? That's a good question. If people want to like email you or Twitter or whatever, whatever. Sure. Uh, Indu.viswanathan, there's no H. Uh, Indu.viswanathan1 at gmail.com. And my email is Parihar, P A R I H A R, dot parth at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining me. And uh, it was a great conversation, a lot of good topics. Um, and Hopefully we'll have you back at some time. Awesome. Thank you.